The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. <laughs> Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. This is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in Los Angeles. Oh, no, in San Diego now, of course. And um, uh, Steve, we're coming together for a little bit of a somber uh, moment yet again. This is one of the things that we have to tackle at times on The Cinephiles, brother. It's true, although, you know, in fact, the last several of these that we've done have all been for people who have lived long, full lives. And so not, it's not like someone was taken away unexpectedly. We're here to honor the great, great Ned Beatty. And, and the thing that's interesting, the previous two, which were, uh, Cloris Leachman and George Mm Siegel, like Ned Beatty are people that had long, massive, varied careers who did comedy, who did drama, who were nominated for Oscars. I mean, like these are, these are the great working actors and Ned Beatty was certainly one of them. Absolutely. And someone who, as I've said numerous times, could play status from the most submissive person to the most dominant person. And it's one of the gifts of his talent and his enduring uh, legacy to be able to work for so many decades and create so many memorable moments in films and memorable characters. Well, and it's funny what you say about status, because we've done three films with Ned Beatty, and we're Mm going to re-release all of them this week. And You talk about playing status. Well, the first one, which we're talking about today, is deliverance. And talk about a person whose entire status is taken away. And and then just two years later, he is playing the most powerful person, one of the most powerful characters in film, which is his speech in Network, where he is. And then after that, the third movie we're going to release is one of the first ones we ever recorded, but that's him playing Otis in Superman. Otis Berg? Yeah, exactly. Like, talk about a range as an actor. Yeah, and so many uh, other um, moments in between, so many other great characters in between. But this is one of those films, because we're talking about Deliverance, we're doing the intro for Deliverance. This is one of those films that are that is iconic for so many reasons, Steve. Certainly, um, the rape scene is one of the first things that people talk about, sticks out in the, the uh, people's minds. Also, the dueling banjos scene, uh, the uh, the Robert, uh, sorry, the Burt Reynolds scene with his leg. There's a lot of moments throughout this movie that stand out to you but you know just like he is um in real life uh, up until his passing uh ned Beatty endures ned Beatty survives ned Beatty carries on and certainly in this film he overcomes an incredible attack on his manhood as a human i'm sorry his humanhood uh in this uh, in that rape scene and is able to survive some pretty terrible um situations in order to come out on top and is i think he's even having dinner at the end of this thing with a group of people which is crazy yeah well i mean he's got you can see everything on his face that he's gone through at that yeah. dinner scene at the end of the film i yeah. mean I, well it's funny i've seen ned Beatty interviewed several times uh and heard him talk about this moment and mm. he's you know and up until probably the end of his life People would scream, squeal like a pig at him. People wow. would, oh yeah, oh yeah. 
Like That's it, terrible. It, it's one of, well, well, what was so interesting is what he says, and I don't know if this is true or not. He mm-hmm. says he had no trepidation about doing the scene. He's like, I'm an actor. That's what actors do. Yeah. And, and that he doesn't have any embarrassment about being portrayed that way on film. Mm-hmm. And, and and if you look throughout his entire career, there's a fearlessness to him. Yeah. You know, he doesn't, he jumps full on into parts. Mm-hmm. He is not trying to look cool. He doesn't have any image he's trying to protect. He's going to mm-hmm. just commit himself completely to whatever he's doing. Yeah. And, you know, he's a gentleman of weight. And, you know, yep. they certainly make a point of that in the Superman movie. And I know we're going to do a separate intro for that, but in the Superman movie, you know, they play that musical score or cue musical Mm -hmm. cue for him. And it's very much the cue for someone of weight. And yet Ned Beatty, like you said, a consummate actor, not caught up in uh, any of that stuff, just does the job. And maybe that's why he was able to work consistently for so many years because he didn't have any hangups about it. He's like, I'm going to do the job. I'm paid to do the job. I'm very fortunate to be working. And he does great work and uh, leaves a lasting legacy for a lot of actors to follow for sure. Absolutely. Well, let me get, let me tell you a little bit about him. He was Hmm. born in 1937 in Louisville, Kentucky. He sang gospel and in barbershop quartets pretty much his whole childhood. And he was such a good singer that he got a scholarship, a singing scholarship to sing a cappella at the University of Transylvania in Lexington, Kentucky. Now, what I was trying to think of in all of the roles you can think of that he played, Hmm. can you remember him singing? Ah uh, no, I actually can't remember I can't him either. Singing. And I, I mean, oh. I haven't seen you. There's no way anyone could have seen everything that Ned Beatty did. And so right. he probably did sing in something. But mm-hmm. the fact that he must have had an amazing voice, and yeah. yet I never knew it, is just kind of fascinating to me. Good point. Yeah. Um, he drops out of college, never graduates, and then he gets on the first time on stage at the age of 19, and it sounds like that was it for him. Even though mm. he'd been a singer throughout his whole life, it was acting. That changed everything. And he was from, you know, from then in 1956 until his premiere in Deliverance in 1972, he was just a working local theater actor. Wow. Uh, Worked at the Clarksville Theater in Indiana. He was at the Actors Theater of Louisville. He played played Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman in 1966. My guess is, and I, so I grew up going to Berkeley Repertory Theater, which was a, a great, great theater. And there were a couple actors there who were heroes. Like they were like, oh my God, this is the most amazing person. And of course, knowing what the life of a theater actor is now, even though they look like a star to me, they were probably living in a small apartment and, you know, right. barely yeah. getting by. And I bet, I bet Ned Beatty was that guy yeah. in Louisville in the sixties, people came to see Ned Beatty. Yeah, why not? And, and you know, it's incredible when you think about the fact that Deliverance was his first role, Steve. His first credited role, his first feature film role out of, but obviously, as you just said, he's been, he'd been building his time, his work, his craft on the stage before he made that jump into films. And when that bug bites you, it bites you. And for some people, it's for the rest of their lives, if they can find success doing it. And for other people, you know, eventually you do find another way out uh, of that kind of situation. So no surprise to me that although he could sing, it was the stage uh, or being on camera that uh, really excited him on all his all the levels that he has. It, it's pretty 
it's pretty remarkable what he does because, mm-hmm. and, and I, I do want to talk more about deliverance uh, mm-hmm. before we start the film, but what's so crazy, he's in deliverance and then he never stops working. Yep. Like he, he's in the life and times of judge Roy Bean right after that mm-hmm. he's in, and he's in, you know, movies like the thief who came to dinner and white lightning, but he's also on TV and he's in the Waltons yeah. and he's in mash and he's in Rockford files. And then he's in Altman's Nashville, yeah. you know, like he just keeps on going. And of course network, which we'll talk about in our next intro wins bet the, uh, is nominated for supporting actor. He's in all the president's men another mm-hmm. film we've done on the cinephiles, mm-hmm. but he's also in comedies like the big bus. Do you remember the big, <laughs> bus yeah of course <laughs> i can't imagine looking at that movie again today i'm sure it's ridiculous but i watched it many times as a kid yeah and I, you know and i remember him you know all through the 80s doing t- separate parts you know jumping into uh, of course back to school and uh stuff like uh, uh you know um switching channels that weird one uh mm-hmm. with with uh, burt reynolds uh and i yeah, think and kathleen Reeve. turner and christopher yeah. reeve yeah, yeah that's right that's right uh and then of course uh, as he gets into the 90s i remember him just taking this a surprising turn into homicide life on the street. One of my favorite shows to watch growing up as a kid, a show that if you've seen the wire or you've seen any of these other harder edge shows, detective cop shows that have come after homicide, homicide influenced them all. Uh, And so if you haven't seen homicide, do yourself a massive favor, go back and watch that show. And Ned Beatty is fantastic in it. And so is Andre Brower, who people love on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Go and see him before he did comedy. He is stellar in in those roles and great cameos and great uh, guest stars like Robin Williams and other people in that uh, series. So he was great on that series. Well, and this is the thing is that it seems like he just wanted to work. You remember we just had our live stream about Marvel movies and we were talking about uh, those terrible 90s Marvel movies. Well, Ned Beatty was in one. Yeah. <laughs> He's in Captain America. Yes, he is. I had no memory of that. And, yeah. and, and as you mentioned, Back to School, which he's hilarious in. Yeah. But then he's in The Big Easy, which is playing in a totally, totally different kind of part. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in Roseanne as John Goodman's dad. He, he, there's so much, there's just so much to his career. And what yeah. I just admire so much is his ability to just do the work, yep. to just show up and do the work. Yeah, and clearly he must have hit some kind of wall in 2013 because that's the last film he did called Baggage Claim, and that was it. And he hadn't worked for eight years, so clearly until his passing. So clearly he had probably hit that wall where he couldn't go on any further in terms of as an actor or felt he couldn't deliver a good performance anymore. And out of respect to the craft that fed him for four decades plus – um, he probably stepped away from it and uh, decided to kind of just focus on himself until he passed away. I, I, yeah. And I, I, and I hope those last eight years were healthy and yes. that they were filled with all the stuff maybe he couldn't do when he was mm. probably traveling around acting all the time. Yeah. Like I hope those were a good eight years that he had. Yeah. Um, have your feelings, we did deliverance a few years ago, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. thinking about that film today, have your feelings about it changed? Have they evolved? Well, I don't know what I don't know if um, I don't know if they've changed at all as much as they. It's just been more of an an appreciation for that film. Whereas I used to discount it as a really uncomfortable seventies film. After our discussion, uh, it kind of took on a new life for me in my mind as a film about 
um, you know, this man versus nature, the reflection of what the worser parts of our nature, what can happen when we don't have contact with the outside world. When we insulate ourselves, we can kind of indulge our worst um, impulses and how being connected to the outside world uh, is important in order for in order to be able to function, in order to be able to not do those kinds of things and understand that there's a social contract and a responsibility you have to other people. And so seeing this movie certainly kind of brings that, um, I don't know, to the forefront in my mind all the time now and a reappreciation of all the actors in that movie. Ronnie Cox, Burt Reynolds, and is it John Voight? John Voight, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Ned. For me, the thing I've been thinking about, and because it's been so much on all of our minds in mm. the last uh, few years is what is the responsibility of the entertainment industry? What is the responsibility of film and how mm. do we p- portray things? And I think movies of the seventies like deliverance in particular, or a film like taxi driver mm. are movies where you go, we're going to put some shit out there yeah, and it might be difficult for you. And we're not going to, resolve it in ways that are going to make you comfortable and we're not going to and we don't and there's a feeling of we don't care this Mm -hmm. is just what this is my art this is what i have to say you know and i think today we spend so much time in many ways that are really good thinking about well how is this going to be received by various people and how Mm -hmm. will they feel about it and how are we exploring issues i mean this is a movie that explores the issue of rape it explores murder it explores you know like the bond between these men and Mm -hmm. what and and like machismo and what that means and what's underneath it and Mm -hmm. the relationship between different parts of america Mm -hmm. and it just goes here it is here's a bunch of stuff Mm -hmm. and it doesn't sugarcoat anything it doesn't offer an ending where the bad guys are punished you don't even quite know how to feel about who these guys are you know like do you like these guys at the end it's it's hard to say (laughs) and i think as much as you know and this is where i continue to go like i love so many of the changes that are happening in the world of film today Mm -hmm. and i also go oh what what have we lost can can could you still make deliverance today and I think the answer is no. Really? I think you could. Oh, I think you could. Absolutely. It would just have to be a different kind of um, approach to it. But dude, well, yeah. you, with what we're seeing with the, I don't know. I, again, I know people get mad when we get a little political on here. But if what we're seeing from the MAGA side of things, you don't think four liberals out on a canoe, you don't think that would be possible to repeat that kind of thing in some way? The hunt uh, from last year that was so controversially shelved and then eventually released mm. was kind of an exploration of that. Um, there, I felt very much to me like a cousin to Deliverance, um, you know, a little more of a satirical approach to it, but still very much in the vein of Deliverance. I'm curious to why you think you wouldn't be made today. Is it the rape scene? Is it the... Uh, exploration for me it's the ambiguity i I think that's the really yeah oh i think the moral ambiguity within the film which is explored you know taxi driver is another perfect example of going i'm i'm with this guy on some Mm -hmm. level Mm -hmm. i'm enjoying him on some level he's a psychopath Right. On another level, you know, in, in Taxi Driver, there's, you know, Jodie Foster and a 13-year-old prostitute and how that's all depicted. Right. Th- these are things that I don't think that we would depict today. 
okay. you know, like for all sorts of conversations that you and I have been having throughout the cinephiles, mm-hmm. you know, is, is like, and th- these kinds of movies that go just directly, here's a thing that's real yeah. in the world. Yeah. And we're not going to put blinders on about it. We're going to just look at it. Mm-hmm. But your point about the hunt, which I never saw, did you see it? Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How is it? It's, it's okay. It's not great, but it's okay. It's certainly a watchable movie. Yeah. Um, it was so funny when all of that was happening and mm-hmm. hearing why it got pulled and how the movie hit from, I, I think it seems like it was a misunderstanding of what the message of the movie was. You yes, know, it was. was. Yes, yeah. it was. And, um, and I always think studios all of a sudden worrying about if they're going to spark flames uh, is hilarious to me on so many levels when they've released so many films that could spark uh, that kind of uh, thing. It never does. No one goes, you know what? I saw this film and I ran outside and, Got crazy. You know, it's it's not about that at oh, all. Oh, you mean in terms of like sparking violence? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, certainly so. they put out things and there are protests and people that are and, and well and but but the thing that you're saying, this is exactly why I go, I don't know if deliverance would be made, because the studios mm-hmm. and people would go like, Whoa, 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 do we really want to be involved? In this kind of controversial stuff, I think you know? a studio like A twenty four would absolutely yeah. put a film like this out. But I don't think yeah. I don't think like you're saying. I think what your point actually is valid if we're talking major studios. I don't think major studios put a film like this. So I think your point is valid in that way. But I do think A twenty four or Focus, right. some of those smaller independent art artist art house studios would put out a film like this for sure. Well, and and regardless of whether it would be put out today, Mm. I think we can say that it is a remarkable film. And in particular, the performances are amazing. And you know what? Since this is a tribute to Ned Beatty, in in many ways, maybe more than any of the other films we're going to talk about with him, just watch Ned Beatty in this movie. There is so much going on. It's so complicated. His bluster, his insecurities, his... Uh, his pride, his fragility, like all of that is playing throughout the film. It's an amazing, amazing performance. Yeah, absolutely. And think about the fact that he is um, uh, 35 years old when he's yeah. making this movie. He's born in 1937, so this is 72. So he's about 35, 34 years old when he's making this movie. So, ladies and gentlemen, it's never too late. Don't think because you haven't gotten somewhere at 20 you can't get there later on in life when you're ready to get there. You know, be patient, have faith. That's wise words, words from the outlaw. And I think <laughs> without further ado, we at the cinephiles are very proud to present 1972's Deliverance. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the cinephiles new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. 
Check out that unique promo code. And for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hi, everyone. Before we dig into John Borman's 1972 film, Deliverance, I think it's important to point out that this movie and our podcast will deal with situations that are disturbing, sexual, and very violent. So parental guidance is definitely suggested. That being said, I give you John Borman's Deliverance. Once again to the Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host over at Collider, um, and also a voiceover artist, and also um, lover of all things, uh, movies, and enjoying the world. And I'm a little tired tonight. You've been like talking all day, it sounds like. Yeah, I've been talking all day. Like all day. I've been on a bunch of Collider shows all day today and then just did a top 10 show and now coming in to do Cinephiles. But I'm really excited to do this uh, film, Steve, because when you su- when a fan, I think, suggests this possibility of comp- between two films, I think it was, or if you came up with the idea, I wasn't sure, but like the idea of these two it films. It was my idea. It was your idea? Great. Yeah. <laughs> but it was Deliverance or what was the other one? Longest Yard. Longest that Yard was- and Deliverance ended up winning... Uh, I was kind of excited to talk about this film because it has a little more weight than The Longest Yard does. It's funny because I think it's felt like you were really into doing Longest Yard when we started. As a personal, because I love that film, yeah. but this, there's more to explore here. Yeah, and maybe someday down the line we can still do Longest Yard. Sure. We've got a lot of movies. I plan on doing Cinephiles for some time. Yes. Assuming nothing gets else happens. <laughs> um, and sadly, there will be other deaths that will uh, be a reason for us to do certain that's movies. That's right. Yeah. Um, and this one, of course, is because uh, Burt Reynolds passed away. Mm-hmm. And we very quickly reposted our old episode of Boogie Nights. We did. Which is sort of the the resurgence, the rediscovery of Burt Reynolds. And this film is really, this is where he, arro- he arrived. Yeah. I mean, this is really the moment where he became a star. And uh, I did I did a little bit of research because I didn't actually know as that much about Burt Reynolds. Okay. And so I went in and took a look. He was It's funny. He always claimed he was born in Georgia, but that was a lie. Oh, of course. <laughs> he was actually born uh, in Lansing, Michigan, because his father was in the military. <laughs> um, and he actually grew up in Michigan and in the Midwest quite a bit for a few years and then moved to the South. Oh, okay. Ended up in Florida, grew up near Palm Beach, yep. uh, became a football player, and then I didn't know... Joined your alma mater, That's Florida right. State University. He's a Seminole, son. Yeah. yeah. Played halfback. Yes, Sounds he like did. he was really good. He was really good, yeah. And the school loves him. There's oh, really? A whole, yeah, of there's course. a whole wing for Burt Reynolds, and he would come and guest teach all the time at Florida State. So, Oh, really? Yeah. Did he ever come when you were there? No, I never saw him when I, when he was there, when I was there, but he did do that. And near the end of his life, he came back to, to teaching actors as well. I read a profile wow. about a year ago where he was doing this from a chair because his health yes. was deteriorating so badly. He was just teaching from a chair with a cane. Well, and it was his health that made him stop football because he blew out his knee. Yep. And it sounds like right around the time he blew out his knee, he's in an English class, and, it, and you're in English class, and they're reading Shakespeare, and they had to read in class, and he was forced, very much against his will, it sounds like, to read some Shakespeare, and yeah. the English teacher said, 
you need to do drama. <laughs> and they get him in a play. He's in a Shakespeare play of Florida State and wins the Florida State Dramatic uh, Performance Award, yeah. uh, which came with a scholarship that was to go off and do summer stock up in New York. And this was right when he blew out his knee. So right as he was ending his football career, yeah. his acting career started real fast because who was at the summer stock with him but Joanne Woodward. Oh, wow. And Joanne Woodward said, you're great. I'm going to introduce you to my agent. Her agent took him on. And he was acting in New York the next year. Wow. He was acting on Broadway six months after that. Good God. Yeah, it happened really fast. And then it happened really slow because that's like the late 50s. Mm -hmm. And then he spent the next 10 years doing TV and doing little bits and parts in movies. The biggest yeah. thing he did was he came in and got a part on Gunsmoke. Yep. And he was on Gunsmoke for four years, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's where it's like, oh, who is this guy? He's going to be a big star. This is by 63, 64. Yeah. And nothing really fit for him, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Again, he's on Gentle Ben. He's on, you know, he, he was on all the stuff yeah. in the mid to late 60s. He had two TV shows that he was the lead of. Both of them died. And so he was looking kind of like this guy's that's not going to happen for him. Right. And then Deliverance happened. Huh. And Deliverance is really what made him a star, which I never, I thought he was already a star when yeah, he did when he Deliverance. Did Deliverance yeah. He really was. I mean, he had done a lot. He right, had worked right, right. for over a decade, but hadn't really hit. Yeah. And then suddenly after Deliverance, he was a star. And, and it's funny, like right after he did Deliverance, uh, he did that naked uh, centerfold in right. Cosmopolitan right. that was hugely, hugely controversial and popular and salacious and he was dating Dinah Shore at the time. What? Yes. He dated her for like five years. Dinah Shore? Dinah Shore and Burt Reynolds and so he was on the Dinah Shore show all the time what? and so suddenly he became this person who was really in the public consciousness so much that and this I just still can't get my head around yeah. when Sean Connery was quitting as James Bond, Albert Broccoli came to him and said, we want you to be the next James Bond. What? Yes. That, listen, if you trust Wikipedia, that is what it says. <laughs> but were they thinking of doing an American James Bond? Or I don't know. Do all, all, all I know is that Burt Reynolds said an American can't play James Bond, and he turned it down. That's well he said. I mean, uh, that's just crazy. That's madness. And, and, and after that, you know, he does White Lightning and Lucky Lady, yeah. and then his directorial debut on Gator. Oh, God, Gator, right. I remember watching that. <laughs> the Oof. vaguest, vaguest memory of that movie. Oof. Um, and then that's when he sort of hits the stride yeah. uh, with uh, Longest Yard and 1977 is Smoking the Bandit. And that's that, that I'd say is peak. That's peak. Stratosphere. Bird. That's stratosphere. Yeah. And uh, Semi Tough, The End, Hooper. Um, and right around then is when we start to have that downfall. And, yeah. it, and it happens pretty fast. We go into Smoking the Bandit 2, Cannonball Run, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Mm -hmm. I think that's like the turn. For me, best little horrors in Texas. I'm not going to put Cannonball Run in a negative. Aspect. No, 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 no. I'm not. But certainly, best little horrors. Best little in Texas, in Texas. And you're right. like, what's happening here? And then, and then there's this thing which we talked about when we had our uh, did the little mm -hmm. intro for uh, Boogie Nights. Is that you know suddenly he was not a movie star. Yeah. And there's a good ten years or so in the wilderness where he becomes you know a joke. He's the creepy dad at the end of the bar. Yeah. You're just like, ooh, with the yeah. perm hair and the mustache. Because he's still trying to swagger. be that guy that yeah. he was yeah. in 1975 and, or 77. And he doesn't know how to be cool at the age no. that he's at. No. He doesn't. he didn't transition well into getting older. And we come back to Evening Shade. Yeah. Um, and then 
And then we get to Boogie Nights. Right. Well, don't skip cop and a half, for God's sakes. I forgive me. <laughs> uh, you're absolutely right. I should not have picked, skipped that. There's a lot that I skipped. Yeah. There's a yeah. lot that I skipped. Bert looks in. There's a lot of wasteland in Bert's career after yeah. the mid-80s. There's some wasteland, and then, of course, Evening Shade. And trust, look, when you were the number one box star, box office star for five years, yep. and you end up on a TV show as your way to exist, to survive, just to work, that's got to, you know, you've got to, it takes a bit of uh, humbling. I'm sure it's very humbling to have that situation. Particularly then. It's like, a good show, though. It was a good show. I don't think I ever really watched really? it. Really? Oh, yeah. for what it was, it was a good show. Particularly at that time, because now TV is, there's all sorts of movie stars oh, yeah. that are doing unbelievable stuff on TV. Yeah. And really, there's a lot more, there is a lot more, at least by quantity, very interesting, challenging television yeah. than there is movies. Yeah. Because there's just a lot of it. Exactly. You know, we are in the peak TV world yeah. and not the peak movie world. Nope. Um. Uh, so let's talk about Deliverance. Yeah. Do you remember how you first came to this? Um, I came to it probably on a Saturday afternoon back in my twenties. Probably watching on one of those stations, and you know, I'd heard the squeal like a pig, and I'd heard yeah. that you got a pretty mouth. So, but I'd never I'd heard it in jokes and stuff, but I'd never seen the movie. And then it just I was for whatever reason I was just in the mood to watch that movie and I and I ended up popping it on. I probably rented it or something. How long ago do you think? Uh oh well twenty, so maybe nineteen ninety five, ninety six, something like that. Probably around there. And I watched it and man, it was a unsettling film to watch to at that age, because I'm still like that idea of anal rape and that idea of being caught out in the woods, and especially with a, a guy like me who grew up in, in Virginia and some of the southern parts of Virginia you know, you 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 ride way out way out in the woods in your bike. You'll see those houses way off right. the main uh, path, and you see some weird stuff when you ride around there. And so uh, there was always that kind of aspect to the film that always scared me. Listen, I, inner cities don't scare me to the level, or any kind of crime around there don't scare me to the level it does being out in the backwoods, being out with these people who are, who've been out there for a long time. Well, you're not a woodsy guy. I'm really not big on nature. <laughs> no, it's not my thing, to be honest with you. And you, 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 you surround with a bunch of people who are a bit backwards and uh, scary looking, and uh, then I, I'm and can play the banjo. Then I'm really scared. Well, I, what, one of the things way. about this movie is about the fear of the other. Yes, it's about oh, yeah. you're in this world and you don't understand. It. Mm -hmm. And it's also about like the uh the city folks' sense of superiority right. about the other. Right. You know, and maybe the those people who live out in the hills in, in Georgia or in the Appalachian Mountains not really liking those city folks. Nope. You know. Um for me, I it was the same thing. I had heard about it a bunch. I had seen clips from the movie. Mm -hmm. I knew about dueling banjos. I knew a couple of things, and I didn't see it until I was in my mid-20s, mid maybe late 20s. And my wife and I are at our my father and my in laws' house, mm -hmm. and he loved movies, and he would randomly order movies and then never watch them. So you had this huge stack of VHS tapes or DVDs, whatever it was at the time. Right. And uh, the subject of Deliverance came up, and Karen had never seen it, and I hadn't seen it, and he said, "Well, let's watch it." So I watched <laughs> it for the first time with my father in law and my mother in law. <laughs> And at the time went, wow, this is a really good movie. Yeah. And I had watched it maybe once since and then watched it a couple of nights ago. So I haven't seen this that much. Oh, wow. And, what's, and what was surprising to me when I just watched it again is like, because I, you know, it's a heavy movie in some ways. It is in some ways. 
And yet it's actually completely compelling, enjoyable, mm -hmm. really, really, I really loved it. I really, really loved it mm -hmm. watching Lust and, and studying about it. I'm like, this is really a fascinating film. And it's, although it does certainly have darkness in yeah. it, it's not as dark. It's, it's actually fun and it's way, fun's the wrong word. It's very entertaining, I guess, is the right word. Yeah, entertaining I'll go with. Okay. I won't go with fun. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about pre-production. Sure. It's based on the novel by James Dickey. Uh, he was a big poet, a Southern man, obviously. Mm -hmm. This is his first novel. It was a monster hit. Yeah. It was a huge hit. And James Borman, or John Borman, who's our director, who we haven't talked about since we talked about Excalibur. Excalibur yeah. It's so funny. Excalibur and Deliverance are the same guy. And this is, of course, 10 years earlier than Excalibur. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had read the galleys and he loved it. And Warner Brothers said, let's do it. And at first, it sounds like the budget was pretty big. Mm. And he he works on the screenplay with James Dickey. They like mail it back and forth to each other until they come up with what the screenplay is. And let me tell you some of the people they were talking about casting because it just sounds amazing. So first of all, Dickey wanted Gene Hackman to play Ed. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Borman wanted Lee Marvin. Ooh. I don't see that one so much. Yeah. Um, but then they approached Brando to play Lewis. Jesus Christ. Which could work. Yeah. A, mo a lot of these could work. Then they after that, af they went after Jack Nicholson to play Ed. Um, I can and, see that. And then those people turned it down. And then they were in serious, serious talks with Donald Sutherland uh, to Ooh. play Ed. Yeah. And Charlton Heston to play Lewis. Oh my God. Oh um, my God. And that's, it sounds like at one point, Robert Redford, Peter Fonda, and George C. Scott and Warren Beatty were all attached for what? the film. Wow. And, the, and it's so funny. Like sometimes we hear these things and it's like, well, that would have been terrible. And it's like, well, a lot of these people, it's like, no, those are pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good it's, people. It's certainly even, an even bigger film at that point. And it sounds like what happened is that Warner Brothers got scared uh, of the content of the film mm -hmm. and they said, you know what? We don't have the money to put into this. And the money gets smaller and smaller and it goes, you're going to have to cast all unknowns. Right, right. And so he goes after, he looks for theater people who are Southern. And that is mm -hmm. how he finds Ned Beatty and Ronnie Cox. Right. Who, this is both of their first movie ever. Right. I discovered that recently. This is Ned Beatty's first feature film ever. I didn't know it was Ronnie Cox's, though. Wow. And they're both, and Ned Beatty in particular, he is one of the great unsung actors of all time. Absolutely. Uh, the, the range between this, if just looking at this and Superman and Network, mm -hmm. those three performances are so completely and totally different. Yep. And, and you could name 25 other Ned Beatty. He is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, He's the voice of Lots of Bear, isn't he? In Toy Story is. 3? I think he is. He's very evil with terrifying. that Terrifying. Yes, very terrifying. Terrifying. Um, yeah, he's a great actor. And then they uh, they do get at Burt Reynolds, and, and Borman didn't really understand that Burt Reynolds' career was at the bottom. You know, he had just had these two failed TV shows. Right. And, and Reynolds said this is the first script he had ever seen that didn't have Rod, Robert Redford's uh, fingerprints all over it, <laughs> which it sounds like, of course, it, 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 it actually did. <laughs> um, and the only real star they went after is John Foyt. Um, Right, because he's after this is after Midnight Cowboy. You're right, it's after Midnight Cowboy '69. That's right. Yeah. So he's actually a big star. How interesting. Um, and he didn't want to do it. Oh. Well, because he he's like this script scares me, uh -huh. which you know, logic for good reason. Yeah, sure. And I love the way uh, and they, they went back and forth and back and forth. And Voight's like, well, maybe yes, maybe no. Finally, Borman's on the phone with him, and he says, "Listen, 
I'm going to hang up this phone in 30 seconds. You have 30 seconds to say yes or no. If you don't, and, and Void's going, that's not fair. How can you, why can't you say two <laughs> minutes? That's so arbitrary. He's like, you got 15 seconds left. He's like, no, come on, seriously, John. We can't make this. He's like, five seconds. I'm going to hang up the phone. He says, if you don't answer now, and, and Void goes, I, and he hangs up the phone on. Oh. Ten minutes later, Voight calls back and says, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> Which, you know what? Actors, man, we're the worst. That's a good way to get someone to do the movie. I agree. Um, uh, That's fascinating to me that this unsettled. I mean, he did a movie like 1969. He's right? a male prostitute in right? this movie. It's, but it's this, an X movie, a rated X movie. But this movie freaked him out. Yeah, He's not even the one getting raped. I think, I think I've only seen Midnight Cowboy once, by the way. Once is enough. Yeah. I'll be honest with you. Once is enough. It is a, it is a, it is a rough movie. Yeah, it is a rough movie. It's not one I revisit at all, other than some of the scenes uh, with uh, Dustin, Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Who's amazing in the movie. Agreed. Um, they did a ton of rehearsal. Mm-hmm. They had James Dickey there for the rehearsal, and James Dickey pulls aside Burt Reynolds and says, listen, I have a secret for you. Everything in this book... Is true. It happened to me. And then he pulled aside John Borman and said, I have a secret. And he told him the same thing. He told everyone the same thing. It's all a lie. It didn't happen to him at all. <laughs> and and at one point, Borman is talking to someone about James Dickey when he wasn't there and said, well, I mean, he's still a you know, rugged, heroic guy. I mean, he flew fighter jets in North in Korea. And no, that didn't happen either. <laughs> Apparently, James Dickey was a big, huge character. So big that they finally had to kick him out of rehearsal. Of course. Because he was just driving everyone nuts. I'm sure he was making it about himself. Particularly Burt Reynolds. Oh, sure. Um, at one point, he kept calling Burt Reynolds Lewis. He said, Lewis, come on over here, boy. And, and Burt wouldn't respond to him. He said, Lewis. And finally he said, my name isn't Lewis. You take, call me Lewis one more time, I'm going to knock your head off. <laughs> and James Dickey's response was, that's just what Lewis would say. <laughs> and, and, and there's a rumor. There's a rumor that he actually got in a fist fight with Borman and broke his nose. But I don't know if that's Ooh, actually true. Wow. But finally, they kick him out of the rehearsal process. Mm-hmm. But they did a lot of rehearsing, a lot of improv, and a lot of practicing canoeing and archery because they had to actually do this stuff. Yeah. Because there are essentially no body doubles in this at all. Right. That is all them except for one moment where, where uh, John Foyt has a body double. Oh, wow. Other than that, that is all them canoeing down the river. They shot most of it in sequence. Mm-hmm. They, and, and the budget got so small that basically a lot of times what they did was the four guys on the canoe, uh, Borman, the DP, and a grip went down river with a camera and bagged lunches and shot all day, and that is it. Wow. And they went down to a point where they got picked up by a car. Yeah. And that's how they shot a lot of this movie. Mostly without sound, because the river is so loud that they couldn't record sound, so they just didn't record any sound, and they dubbed in all the dialogue later. Right. I mean, that's an amazing... This is like a 70s film. Low budget, out on the water, in the middle of nowhere, because it took them forever to find this location in Georgia. Yeah. And And... Borman wanted a location that was really untouched, mm-hmm. which meant that you could only get in there with four-wheel drive. It was really hard, couldn't get equipment in, and that made it this very indie kind of film. Yeah, no surprise. Yeah. Would you like to get in the movie? Let's do it. <laughs> it's really interesting to me that we start with just hearing laughter over the Warner Brothers mm-hmm. symbol. I'd never seen that. It's really unusual. Mm-hmm. You want you want to you want to talk about the vanishing wilderness? Lewis, listen. Why are you so anxious about this? Because they're building a dam across the Kahulawasi River. They're going to flood a whole valley, Bobby. That's why. Damn it, they're drowning the river. 
And we kind of hear these guys joking as they're driving. And we see these uh, f- this flooded lake with these trees peeking up from the bottom of the lake because the river has been dammed up, which is just a strange thing to see. Yeah. And we hear that what they're going to do is to go canoe down the one uncorrupted river in the south. And this idea of the untouched nature, the virgin nature, if mm-hmm. you will, mm-hmm. that is about to be destroyed by this dam is a key thematic element in the film. Yeah. And as we're hearing about this, we're also seeing the building of the dam and the contrast between the river and this and where the big equipment is and the dust and the devastation of the essentially raped earth as yeah. they are building this dam. Yeah. The metaphors in this film are pretty up, up front, yeah, I would say. Well, even that opening credit scene, uh, Steve, to me, the reason you hear the voiceover is those are the memories of that situation coming through after the lake's already been flooded, after that place has already been flooded. That's how I took it. Yeah, absolutely. Those are the words that were exchanged on the way down when it was still just a town. Right. The water you see is is that afterwards, and yeah. it's just the buried memories of what we're going to watch here in a minute. I, I think that's a great way to a great way to think about yeah. it. Totally. Um, and we hear we start to hear this thing of that Lewis, which is the Burt Reynolds mm-hmm. character, is uh, the one kind of not just driving them figuratively, but is he? Yeah. This is his idea. This is, yeah, he is pushed for this thing, and they're kind Nature of like, man. "Do you know what you're doing?" And he's like, "Of course I do." Mm-hmm. He's got a lot of uh, confidence. Yes, shall we say? Sure, he has confidence. Hubris, one would also throw. Might in. say hubris. And we also hear that we're going out into the woods where they're, they use the word hillbillies. Yeah. It's funny thinking about the, the word isn't racism, but the uh, sense of superiority mm-hmm. of our guys coming out of Atlanta, yep. out into the hills and the Appalachian Hills to see the people that are living there. They uh, don't respect them so much. Yeah. It's, it denotes a superiority. You're right. Exactly what you said, you know, and it denotes that they're, they think of them as ignorant and lesser than. Absolutely. And we pull into a gas station, mm-hmm. which barely looks like a gas station. I, I don't know how they can tell it's a gas station. I'll be honest when you watch the movie. Well, this is this is this world they're going into. And by the way, this is all real places. These aren't sets. These are real places. The vast majority of the people we meet, those are people who lived out in those places near what? the river. For real? Oh, yeah. Holy shit. The only actors, paid actors, the some of the people at the end of the film, and the two mountain men. But all the other oh, people, yeah. Oh, and 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 Bobby, uh, whatever his name is, who played the banjo. Yes. But the other folks, the guy who dances at the gas station, all those, those are just people that lived in that area. Yeah. Um. No thanks. I love the moment as they're pulling in where they ask Lewis if he's lost, and he says, "I've never been lost in my life." I totally know that guy. Yeah. I've been around that guy. Of course. Um. And. Uh, out of the car comes Ronnie Cox. I always forget that this is Ronnie Cox. Mm-hmm. A young and he's great in this movie. Yes. And he gets out in the car with his his guitar. Yep. Uh and I think the most nervous person is Bobby, Ned. And he he and he covers it with being insulting yep. and condescending. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting how we feel about each of these characters mm-hmm. as we start to meet who they are. Yeah. Uh and and there's sort of a let's not upset these people yeah. kind of attitude. Yeah. And then as we're at the gas station and Lewis is trying to get someone to talk to him about getting some drivers to take mm-hmm. care of, bring, bring the trucks back on the, when they go down the river, yeah. Drew strums his guitar. And we hear the first few notes yeah. of what we've, most of us have come to hear before this iconic Dueling Banjos song. Yeah. Do, 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 do. It's just like real simple. Yeah. And then it starts to build from there. And and we look up and we see this kid, 
And they they spent a long time trying to find this kid. Yeah. That looked like this. Oh, really? Yeah. They because oh, wow. they wanted someone that looked different. Sure. And uh, word for it, Billy Joe Redden looks yeah. different. Yeah. He he, he has a smile and he has eyes and he has a look that is not so normal. Right. And uh, apparently he's 15 years old. He had a second grade education. Okay. And he was 15 when he made this movie. 15. God, he looks 12. Yeah. And he doesn't play the banjo. What? He does not know how to play the banjo. Was that all piped in? Nope. So what they did is they found another kid who does know how to play the banjo, and that kid is sitting directly behind Billy, and his hand is up on the neck of the guitar, Get the and hell Billy's out of hand here. is down. So all he had to do was pick, and the other kid is doing all the fingering. Get out of here! Yeah, that's how they did it. Wow. Yeah, and this scene, this dueling banjo scene, is completely remarkable to me. Yeah, and and it's lo- it takes a long time for that song to build. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, I love the song "Dueling yeah, Banjo." Song's great. It's great. I've seen so many skits that are uh, dueling uh, baseball coaches doing signals, hand yeah. signals, dueling banjos. I've seen dueling cooks do dueling banjos, dueling people cleaning up a house doing dueling banjo. Like so <laughs> many like kind of camp skits set yeah. to dueling banjos. I love dueling banjos and watching this slowly build over time. And it's first sort of, because it's really a discussion between yeah. Ronnie Cox, Drew's character, who does play guitar, by the way. Right. He sort of asks a musical question. And this kid answers it. And it goes back and forth. And while this is happening, we have Lewis kind of trying to talk to uh, people about getting the cards. Mm-hmm. We have Ned, who's talking to a guy about his hat. Yeah. We have the looks of John Voight as he's kind of seeing, well, what's going on? And then there's this moment as the kid sort of proves himself. And the Ronnie Cox goes, oh, you can really play. And he stands up and kind of goes, come on. And then they really yeah. go into dueling banjos. Come on, I'm with you. guy starts dancing in the background yeah very weird it is so nobody told that guy to dance what? that's a local guy and he just was listening to dueling banjos and that dance is such a specific kind oh my god of dance yep and and the looks of watching the guy start dancing mm-hmm. and the i'm telling you, that smile on that kid's face as he's playing the joyfulness yeah. is amazing yeah agreed and here, here's the thing i was thinking about this scene mm-hmm. is this is this is a movie that's about the city folks coming to the country. Mm-hmm. It's about the the danger of the country folks. It's about wow. it's about this river and coming to visit this unspoiled river. Mm-hmm. And this is a moment of connection. Yeah, like there's like a I mean literally connection through music. The literal harmony is yep. happening here as they're playing together, and it's joyful, and it is about to be broken. Yeah, I love the moment by the way where Ronnie Cox gets lost because the kid is playing so fast. I'm lost. And manages to come in right at the end. God damn, I could play all day with that guy. I believe you could too. And he goes up to shake his hand, and what happens? Turn the kid just turns away from him. Yeah. And doesn't even look at him. Yeah. It's a very weird moment. But that's the moment of that's the moment where you know this is gonna be a very that's the moment of dread. Yeah. Um you had this it it it, it fools you, you know, this because you go out on the river, it's peaceful. You have no idea what's 
around the edges of this peaceful river. And this moment is the same thing. You have this moment where they feel like they're connect. He feels like they're connecting and they're yeah. speaking through the language of music. They are connected. Yeah, they're having a great time. It seems like both to together. A point. Yeah. And then when the music stops, though, it's over. It's uh, yeah. That yeah. moment is over. Yeah. yeah. And Bobby, who by the way, that's Ned Beatty's character, who mm-hmm. by, when they first saw the kids, said something about talk about genetic deficiency yeah, or something, yeah. which is kind of fucked up. Of course, he said his response to the kid turning away is oh just give him a couple of bucks yeah which is so typically not elitist exactly but mm-hmm. di- it's certainly dismissive, dismissive. Yeah. Dis- yeah exactly that's the right word mm-hmm. uh and of course we fu- and and then we find out that oh there's a couple of brothers you need to go find to, right to get they're, they're the guys who are going to drive the trucks they drive down to this village they kind of walk up and look around and ed looks through this window at this little sick kid and this old woman who has and again these are just local people and it's looking into a different world. These people oh, yeah. do not live in the same world as our our folks from Atlanta, and certainly the same world that we live in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but we do find the the brothers. Guys like a blacksmith who I think hits his thumb or something yeah, with a when, hammer when they interrupt him. And they're trying to explain like what we want you to do. We want you to to drive over to this place and then drive our vehicles down to down the river so we can pick them up. And the guy's like, "You're gonna ride canoes down that river? Why? Why?" <laughs> yeah. What the hell you want to go fuck around that river for? Because it's there. It's there, all right. You get in there and can't get out. You're going to wish it wouldn't. And, and at this point, Ed is, that's uh, John Voight is going, let's just go play golf. Yeah. Like, why are we doing this? Yeah. And But they finally convince him we're going to give him 40 bucks. And Ed Lewis is very, very happy with himself for making this deal. Mm-hmm. And there's this moment they all get in their cars. So we have the two cars of our guys with canoes on top. Yeah. And then they get in their pickup truck, which I swear to God is Mater from Cars. <laughs> <laughs> it's that exact Certainly possible. rusty brown pickup yep. truck. Yep. Um, and then Burt Reynolds just takes off and totally cuts them off on the road yeah. to get in front. Lewis, <laughs> for does he know where he's going? No, he's never been lost, so he must know where he's going. <laughs> he says he, well, but he gets lost right <laughs> he And he does. is driving like a crazy person mm-hmm. to go. And, and they really did this. They're in a four-wheel drive vehicle. Burt Reynolds is really driving. Jesus. Cameraman is in the back seat, just wow. bouncing around. Wow. And, and, you know, and this is the thing about this movie. The risky, dangerous things that the characters are doing in the movie, that's what they're doing. Yeah. There's, no, there's very little fakery here yeah. at all. And we drive down first to the wrong spot, and then they drive, and then bouncing down this road with Ed going like, "Hey, you know, you're gonna you're gonna kill me yeah. like doing this thing. We're gonna you're gonna kill me before we even get to the river." Yeah. And as they're bouncing along, this funny thing happens, which is there's the Jesus Christ, you're gonna kill me moments, right? And then Ed's laughing, and Lewis is laughing. What is that exactly? That's man stuff. That's yeah. you know, whenever you. You push each other to your limits. You start to just laugh because you instinctively or reflexively just laugh at the lunacy of the situation. And then you find that you kind of strip away that uh, veneer of like what you're supposed to be doing or what you should be doing. And you kind of revert back to being 10-year-old kids on an adventure on your bike right now, way out there or some stuff. Yeah. Do you think that sometimes in our lives we need Lewis? It's a very good question. I think it depends on the stage of your life. I don't think you need him in your 50s. I don't think you need him in your 60s or your 70s. I don't need him now. But I think you need him in your 20s and your 30s possibly to kind of push your comfort zone or your boundaries and make you see what you're capable of doing uh, in a situation like that. I don't... um, 
I don't love hanging out with Lewis's at this point in my life. No, no, no. But there were definitely some things that I did when I was younger that I was glad that I did. Yeah. That I wouldn't have done. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening right now. Without Lewis, we wouldn't be doing any of this. Absolutely. And right now, we finally stop the cars. We get out. Mm -hmm. Just in the distance, we hear something. Listen, Ed. And there's this moment where Lewis kind of stops. And he climbs out up this hill. Yeah. And he smiles. And he looks out at something. And then Ed gets out of the car. And he follows up the hill. And Lewis says to him, Sometimes you have to lose yourself before you can find anything. That's a great line. And of course, Ed's response is, Are there any snakes around here? (laughs) (laughs) And what do we see as we push away the branches of the tree? And we see there's a beautiful shot of them sort of looking. And then we look out and we see the river. Yeah. A couple more months, she'll all be gone. One big dead lake. It's funny, there's a, I've been to um, Lake Powell, which is where they dammed up the Colorado River. Oh, okay. And it is spectacular. But it also is a complete change for that what that environment is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. That's supposed to be a river, and instead it's this huge, huge lake. Right. Um, and it is a weird thing that we do of transforming these natural environments. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're loading our boats in. Bobby's complaining. Of course. There's a, we, we see that both Lewis and... Uh, and Ed have these bows and arrows. And Lewis criticizes something about Ed's bow. And it's clear that he's sort of the guru mm-hmm. of archery. Bobby, of course, is worried about, can we really trust these guys with the cars? Mm-hmm. And I love Lewis's line. Can't judge people by the way they look, chubby. <laughs> I know. <laughs> There's a lot in that line. Yep. And a lot in what we're going to see in their relationship. Ronnie decides he wants to go with Ed, and so we got Lewis and Bobby, that's uh, Burt Reynolds and Ned Beatty in one canoe, in the metal one, the the aluminum one. Yeah. That's the one that I've been in the most. Oh, okay. And uh, Ronnie Cox and John Voigt are in the wood canoe, right. which apparently John Borman let them pick which canoe they wanted, oh. and Burt Reynolds is going... Uh, I hope that Voight picks the wood one. I hope he picks the wood one. And of course, he did pick the wood one because that's the pretty one. Yeah. And Burt Reynolds knew that that's the one that's not going to be any fun to be in. Right. Because a wood canoe is doesn't handle all those rocks very well. Oh. Aluminum canoe can handle just about anything. Yeah. Um, so they take off. They put on their life jackets. I love, by the way, Burt Reynolds' cut-off uh, vest shirt yeah. to show off his arms. Yeah. I think that's a big part of what makes him a star. He looks so good in that thing. He looks like he's wearing a rubber suit that he's cut the arms off of. Totally. That's exactly what he looks like. Surfing on the river. And they start heading down river. Yeah. And there's chatter. There's talk. It's not that important. No. This river is gorgeous. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely beautiful. They come up to their first little rapid. Have you ever been canoeing? Twice. Hmm? Like you said, I'm not a nature guy. Yeah, I know. It ain't my deal. But I did when I was younger for Boy Scout stuff or with uh, right. friends who wanted to go out and wanted to go camping. I did a couple times, but... On a river or a lake or... Yeah, a river. Yeah, yeah. with the rapids and everything like yeah, that. You did the rapids. Yeah, it was a little right. dangerous. A little yeah. scary as well. But like, you know, you don't want to go down the ones that are too uh, insane. Right. So yeah. so I did... Uh, I have canoeing merit badge. Congratulations. <laughs> It was very important. To I'm me. sure I do too. So I did a bunch of canoeing trips in Boy Scouts, yeah. and then I did one, uh, two whitewater rafting trips that went down Big Rapids. Okay, um, that's I've never done that. That's intense. Yeah. That's intense stuff. Um, they go down their first rapid, and there is a lot of uh, talk. Yeah, Ned is kind of panicking, 
and which is interesting because by the way he's really the only one who had done canoeing before before this movie and he had to play the most awkward person ned yeah really oh how interesting yeah. okay it sounds like he was outdoorsy <laughs> i'm not surprised <laughs> and they get through it and there is just a moment of celebration yeah you know when they get through it and it's not a big rapid we're going to get into bigger ones later on oh yeah literally and figuratively yeah and then they pass under a bridge. Mm-hmm. And there's the kid. Look, Ed. That kid on that bridge. Yeah. And he's sort of got his banjo, and he's swinging it like the pendulum of a clock. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Drew looks up and wants to connect with him. Yeah. He plays his paddle like a, like a guitar. Yeah. And, and wants a response. He gets no response. And the shot of them going under that bridge is an unbelievable, amazing shot. Yeah. It is, and really, really hard, mm-hmm. because they're just on a canoe or, yeah. or a raft, and the cameraman, which is our DP, which is uh, Vilmos Zygmunt. Vilmos Zygmunt. Uh, he just shot that shot as amazing. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is a great cinematographer. Yeah. He had just done McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Isn't he a Spielberg guy? Isn't he a oh, lot yeah. Of Sp- uh, Spielberg's movies? Yeah. A Sugarland yeah. Express and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And Deer Hunter. And Real Genius, <laughs> your favorite film. Why not? Um, yeah, he's a fantastic cinematographer. There's something, the word for that shot is foreboding. Yes. It is like... They're entering, to, they're going into the mouth of hell. Yeah. It's the mouth of the river, it's the mouth of hell. Yeah. Um, now we get to a bigger rapid. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment of panic. And, and Lewis stands up in the canoe, which you're really not supposed to do. Nope. And he's just like, this is good. Yeah. And Bobby, of course, goes, what happens if we flip this thing open? And, and Lewis's response is, well, now that you bring this up, hold on to your paddle. And if you hit any rocks, don't hit them with your head. <laughs> That's really good advice. And then that sort of panicking, stressful, intense, joyful, argumentative time as they go through the rapids. Yep. You got Burt Reynolds yelling at Ned Beatty. You have Ed and a very tentative Ronnie Cox, like trying to navigate through. And this is hard. You have to like pick a lane and work together and and pick the right spot. And then you have to work really, really hard. And then you have to stop and you have to turn. It's difficult. And again, I just have to say, this is just them going down the river together. There's no river guide. There's no paddling expert. This is just the four guys in the canoe. And the director, the cameraman, and a grip in a raft going with them. And, of course, not only did every single one of those actors get dumped into the water and capsized, but so did the raft. And they had a guy whose job it was to clean up and dry out the camera to get it working again because that was the big scary thing. Right, of course. Was was Zygmunt, the DP, trying not to get the camera wet (laughs) as they go through the rapids. It's really beautifully shot. And Bobby's celebration as they get to the end, yeah. when he accomplishes that thing, is amazing. That's the best, the second best sensation I ever felt. <laughs> you did good, Chubby. You did good. Bobby starts talking, and Lewis interrupts and talks about how the first explorers felt. First explorers saw this country. Saw it just like us. In a canoe. I can imagine how they felt. Yeah. We beat it, didn't we? <laughs> did we beat that? You don't beat it. Don't beat this river. 
and they all look up at the river with more respect and then they paddle on. And that's an important point. (laughs) You don't beat the river. Mm -hmm. You might get down the rapids, but this river is going to beat you. Exactly. Yeah. When I go fishing, I usually do it with like, you know, a fishing pole and a line. (laughs) That's not how Lewis does it. Nope. Got that big compound bow. Yeah. Those metal arrows. And standing in the in the bow of the canoe yeah. with uh, John Voigt kind of reclining in the back mm-hmm. while he's shooting some arrows. Um, and Lewis is talking about how all those machines, they're all going to fail. And then what? Then survival. Who has the ability to survive? That's the game. Survival. One of the interesting things about the book to the movie is the book apparently had a third of the book takes place in Atlanta mm-hmm. before we go on the trip. Yeah. And Dickie goes, you got to have that in there because that's how you're going to learn who these people are. Right. And Borman says, that's not how movies work. Like movies, you cast an actor mm-hmm. and they have their clothes and their way of moving and their way of speaking. And you're going to know right away who these people are. Yeah. And I think that's totally true. Mm-hmm. Is that from Lewis saying it's about the ability to survive. We know who he is. Yeah. From him, his driving, his his uh, the way he handles the canoe, his insults mm-hmm. to Bobby, we know who he is. Yep. We know who Drew is from when he plays the, the guitar and dueling yep. banjos. We know who Ed is from sitting back and observing, and yeah, and we certainly know who Bobby is. Like we get these people right away. Yep. Yeah. And of course, Ed's response is, "You can't wait for that to happen, can you?" <laughs> and that Burt Reynolds smile. Yep. Yeah. That swagger and smile he has. Um, of course, that's not how Ed feels. He thinks the system's done pretty well by him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You got a nice job. Got a nice house. Nice wife. Nice kid. You make that sound rather shitty, Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the thing, this question of Lewis is going on these trips because this is the world he wants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And why is Ed going on this trip? Well, there's friendship. And then there's also like, you know, a change of pace. And he says, he tells them, you know, it's just like it's a way for them to hang out and be together and talk about stuff. But, but you know, you have two different men here in this situation, right? Ed yeah. doesn't mind sitting in the back of the canoe, arms folded, listening to, or arms around his head, listening to uh, Bert talk right. about his stuff. But because he's living vicariously through Bert and his wild adventures as a as what essentially probably is a single man yeah uh so he sits back and enjoys that situation but Bert's always on edge man he's always like ready to jump at any moment you can sense that energy off of him well i think lewis wants to kind of dip his toes in the water i'm sorry ed wants to dip his toes in the water of lewis's life yeah you know what i mean he wants to experience some of this without going full into it with still maintaining what his other life is yeah and by the way at the end of this Lewis shoots that fish. Yes, he does. Yeah. And we cut to that night. Mm-hmm. Got a nice open fire. We got tents. Drew's playing the guitar, singing yep. a song. Yep. Ronnie Cox has a nice voice. He does? Yeah. Uh, they're drinking. Ed's smoking his pipe. <laughs> I love the pipe, by the way. Bobby offers Lewis some booze. Yeah. Lewis doesn't drink, which I find surprising. Um, Drew pay- plays a little bit of dueling banjos, which is... The, really, the whole score of the film yeah. is okay. dueling banjos. It keeps coming back. And Bobby has kind of come to Lewis's way of thinking, in a way. He says, It's true, Lewis, what you said. There's something in the woods and the water that we have lost in the city. We didn't lose it. We sold it. Mm. This is a really important line, particularly when they're about to kill this river to build a, a power dam, yeah. electric 
electric uh, uh, dam to power electricity and air conditioning and all that stuff in Atlanta. Yep. <laughs> Ned Beatty's really funny. He's talking about his air mattress, <laughs> and he's talking about that it's going to be a, his version of abroad. And then he yeah. does this little dance where he lifts up his shirt, and it's <laughs> very, very funny. And just as that's happening, Lewis stands up. Yeah, man. He heard something. Yep. Like a meerkat. Yeah. And he's up and he's out. Yeah. And then the guy, and this is all in one shot, by the way. And the guys get up and go, what, what is it? And they come kind of towards camera Mm -hmm. and then they go looking away from camera. And as they go away from camera in right in front of the camera in the foreground pops Burt Reynolds. Yeah. And they don't hear him. And then he, they, and then he says something and then they freak out. Yeah. Cause he scared the crap out of them. Yes, he did. Do you think he heard something? Yes. I think you always hear things in the woods. Sure. I mean, do you think it was the mountain men? Yeah. You do. I, do. I think, you know, I think, yeah, you hear a lot of things in the woods, but I think a guy like this who knows nature, he knows which sounds forebode danger and which sounds don't. I think part of the question that this relates to is how much is Lewis full of shit? Yeah. It's a good question to have. And he's not. I mean, obviously, he's the most experienced guy here. Right. He has a bunch of skills. Sure. But he also... I mean, I, we've known some people who kind of pose a little bit as yeah. a certain kind of thing, and they—it's not that they aren't, but their their pose is bigger than their reality. Yeah, I put it that way. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about Lewis. He likes them thinking of him as the as a certain thing. Yeah, of course, and it, he plays into it. Yeah, yeah. And he says he thought he heard something or someone I don't know, and they all laugh and they say good night. Yeah, and Ned's going to sleep. And at this point, Ed is drunk. Hmm. I love, by the way, Bobby has a line of, I had my first wet dream in a sleeping bag. How was it? Great. There was no repeating it. (laughs) I don't know exactly what that means, but I think there is no repeating your first wet dream. I agree with that. Um, And then Ed turns when he's all alone with Lewis. He turns to Lewis, very drunk, and says, No matter what disaster may occur in other parts of the world, or what petty little problems rise in Atlanta. No one can find us up here. Yeah. That's a line with a lot of meaning, mm-hmm. double meaning. Because mm-hmm. I think, and when we get into, um, Karen asked last night as we were watching it, like, what does the title mean? Yeah. Which is a good question. Deliverance. Yeah. And one of the things that John Borman says is he says, well, they think that they will be delivered from their lives in Atlanta, their yeah. kind of meaningless lives, by this experience in the woods. Right. And this line, he says, isn't it's kind of him saying, isn't it great that none of those problems of life can find us up here? Right. But the other meaning of that line is, if you get in trouble, no one can find you. Yeah. You are on your own. Yep. Because they're going to need to get delivered from this river. Yeah. You know, in, in the end, that's what they have to escape from. Uh, it's the next morning. Beautiful morning. Yep. Ed's the first to wake up. He grabs his bow. He goes off into the woods. It's quiet. Yep. And there, a little ways away from him, he sees a deer. Mm-hmm. And he knocks an arrow. He aims at the deer. Mm-hmm. He pulls back the arrow. The deer hasn't seen him at all. It's just right there. Easy shot. Yep. His hand starts to shake. Both hands start to shake. Starts to shake more. His whole body starts to shake. And it's unsettling how much he's shaking. Yeah. He's having a a real emotional moment. Yeah. Have you ever killed an animal? 
Have I ever killed an animal? Yeah. No. Yeah. Nor nor would I. Hunting's never been my thing. Hunting titles. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, you're an expert at that. There you go. But no, but not hunting animal. I've never had any kind of inclination to shoot a living thing. I I'll saw- step on an insect. That's about as far as sure. I go. Yeah. I uh, I had a ki- I killed a rat. Uh, oh. Yeah. The I we had. We're in my old 102-year-old house right now. Mm-hmm. And we've had rats off and on in the last 20 years that we've lived here. Wow. Which suck. Yeah. You know, particularly when you're sitting watching TV and a big rat runs across your living room floor. Holy shit. Oh, yeah. What? Yeah. Not right now. We've gotten rid of them all at this moment. Okay. Don't look around. There's no rats. Shit. Um, but at one point, we had rat traps and down in like where our water heater is. And I went in to check the trap, and there was a rat who was half caught, like his leg was caught, but he was still alive. And I went, shit, I got to put this rat out of its misery. Right. And so this is my only time, like, killing a mammal. Wow. Uh, And so I killed it. Wow. And it was hard. It actually was hard. What'd you do? I have a machete. Damn! Yeah. So I, I... I cut that rat's head off. Oh, my God. Well, I couldn't think of another way to do it. All right, Lewis. You know. Okay. <laughs> it felt like what? And, th- and then I ate it. And then you ate it. No. That's something Lewis would do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I love, too, after he after he misses the arrow shot, he, like, kind of slides down the hill and mm-hmm. gets tripped up. And there's just a great a great moment as he uh, is just pissed off at himself. He's so out of his element. Yeah. And he's back at camp. Angry, yeah. And Lewis kind of brings up this thing. You know, there's guys I, he knows who are great target shooters, who they have, and I forget what the word he, he used some word, but basically, you know, a freak out in yeah. trying to actually kill an animal, referring to what happened to Ed. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think Ed is upset and disappointed in himself and relieved. Yeah. At this moment, absolutely, that he didn't kill that mm-hmm. that deer. Um, which is ironic. Yeah, considering what happens later. Yeah, and the, the and then Lewis just kind of whispers to Ed, uh, "You take that chubby boy with you today." Yeah, he complained the whole time yesterday. Yeah. Things would have been really different if they had had different groups. Things also would have been different if they had listened to Lewis, which is don't get too far ahead. Yeah, but those two idiots got too That's far a ahead. Good point. That's a good point. Um, well, Bobby wants to get moving because he got eaten alive by bugs the yeah. night before. And he's like, let's go. Yeah. And they're like, whoa, 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 slow down. We got all day. Uh, and again, we go down river. Again, we're hearing dueling banjos. Mm-hmm. By the way, the, we're going to have a whole orchestral score. And first of all, again, the budget was cut and cut and cut. And finally, the dueling banjos was just so effective that John Borman yeah. said, let's just have that be the score. So he got a couple of a guitar player and a banjo player. He says they recorded the score in four hours for wow. the whole movie. Wow. I don't even know how that's possible. Sometimes directors on commentary tracks exaggerate things. <laughs> you think? Um, anyway, we're going down shore. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Ed and Bobby are alone. They pull the canoe ashore. They're wondering where Lewis and Drew are. And then Ed sees a man in the distance. Mm-hmm. Calls over to Bobby. We see one of these men has a rifle. And these two guys come up. And this is Howard Cowboy Coward, which is the guy missing the teeth. Yeah. And Bill McKinney. Okay. And Bobby kind of walks up towards him, trying to be friendly in that sort of... Yeah. The city way. City, phony way. Just go, how goes it? <laughs> And Bill McKenney goes, what the hell you think you're doing? Uh, and Bobby looks over at Ed and gives this eye roll. Again, that sort of insulting city, mm-hmm. 
demeaning sort of look because he doesn't give these guys any respect. Right. Um, and Ed's kind of saying, oh, we're heading down river and we're going to Atri or whatever the place is. And first they say, like, this river doesn't go there. You're going right. the wrong way. Sure. This river only runs one way, Captain. Haven't you heard? You ain't never going to get down to Antri. Well, why not? This river don't go to Antri. You done taking the wrong turn. And and Ned, there's a great rack focus shot onto Ned as he listens to to them. Mm-hmm. And finally, Bobby just kind of goes, "Well, I guess the river comes out somewhere, and that's where we're going." And then there's this moment where Bill McKinney, one of the mountain men, just reaches up to touch Ned's yeah, face, just, just brushes it. It is so creepy, S- super creepy. It, it's it's so it. random, and it violates his personal space. And there's this look from Ned Beatty, he just like, "Yeah, what was that?" Yeah. But oh. he senses what's happening. I imagine Ned Beatty, uh, the character that Ned Beatty is playing, has was bullied when he was a kid, probably beat up when he was a kid. So he gets what these guys are doing. See, because the thing is, Ned talks about, through most of the movie, his sexual prowess. You know, I had some of my best nights in that backseat, blah, blah, blah. I had my first wet dream. He's oh. trying to overcompensate. Sure. For being, supposedly being this, you know, this sexually active dude. And I don't think so. I think he was, a, I think he was bullied. I think he was beat up as a kid. And I think... When the brush happens, it's bringing back memories of that because oh, it's so it's sure. so sudden, and he seems frozen by the situation, yeah. not like pissed off. Frozen. There's a difference. Um, well, that I mean, what we're going to see out of and again, Ned Beatty's performance in this whole movie is unbelievable. Yeah, I agree. And then he kind of goes, "Oh, well, I think his thought process is maybe these guys run a still, yeah, and they're they're being defensive of their territory. That's what he creates so, in his mind. And so he goes, well, if you guys you know have some whiskey, we'll just buy some of them. Yeah, yeah. Which either way is the wrong thing to say because they're like, what do you mean? Yeah, what are you talking about? And then Ed kind of jumps. It's like, no, no, no. It's all it's all good. <laughs> we, we you know we didn't mean anything. We're just gonna get going. Yeah. And no, they're not. Take one more step, I'll shoot you. Yep. And out comes that rifle. Oh, my God. Oh, well, gentlemen, we can talk this thing over. What is it you, you require of us? Well, we uh, require that you get your goddamn ass up in them woods. All right, now, right look. Now. Okay, all right. Get up there. All right. I mean, it is the, the turn of just like, oh, we're powerless. Well, and here's the deal, Steve. What we're about to watch, for me, is maybe the most authentic rape scene you'll ever see in real life. You'll, because, and of course, other people can attest the different situation. But the, the the it feels very real and natural in that it's sudden. You are completely powerless in this situation. You, it's awkward. You, it's awkward. You and don't dirty. And- yeah, people think, oh, you'll scream. Or, yeah. It's you're really you're just like shocked that it's happening, and that's what's so effectively done here by John Borman's direction in this entire scene. Is it's just shocked that it's happening. And you don't have that usual histrionics that you see in films to convey that situation. Here's what I was wondering. So this is 1972. Yeah. This is a a, a man raping another man. Mm-hmm. How had we seen in a film earlier than this a, a rape of a man and a woman or any kind of rape that was as uh, real as this? I don't. Not that I can recall. Not an American film, at least. Yeah. I what, what's fat? I mean, it's like. Statistically, I don't know. There are men that are raped by yeah, men, yeah. but there are far more women raped by men. And it's sure. interesting that the first one that we see is a man raping a man, and it's uh-huh. and it's also interesting as a man, like how violating this feels. 
and I wonder if it's, I just wonder at the, this choice at this time, mm -hmm. I guess I'm not articulating this very well because obviously a very sensitive and complicated yeah. issue, but the, the humiliation of Ned Beatty's character in the way that this happens is yeah. so profound mm -hmm. in a way that I don't think, I don't think we've dealt with the, you know, tremendous history of assault on women in the way that this movie deals with it on a man yeah. in 1972. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I agree with you of every one that I can think of. This is the most real feeling. Yeah. And you don't want to shirk past the, uh, Brando raping, uh, um, Oh my God. Uh, I, know, I don't think Lee in streetcar named desire. Yeah. That's a rape. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, so they go up further in the woods they put up Ed up against a tree, tell him to be still. Ugh. And he says if he doesn't, he'll shoot his goddamn balls off. Shoot your goddamn and they, balls off. And they tie Ed up around his neck with his belt, <laughs> tell Bobby to take off his pants. Oof, and and there's still this moment of like, what's this about? What's yeah, happening? Yeah, but then he does it. Like there isn't that resistance no. you would anticipate. Once again, that's why I think he's been bullied. He's been in the situation, but maybe not the rape situation, but he's certainly been embarrassed. Maybe he's like, maybe the, the guys beat him up, told him to take off his clothes in front of other guys so they could always ridicule him. So he just reflexively does it, even though it it's a, a um, an unsettling situation for him. Well, and I also think I don't think he thinks that I'm about to be raped. Yeah, no, I think he goes like we just gotta this guy's got rifles i we're in a really weird situation right i gotta get along and maybe yeah. they're gonna humiliate me or something right um and so he takes his pants off plus he's an insurance salesman so he's used to adapting to the situation changing tactics to get out of a situation i'm right. sure I, I think in a way that's true they cut open ed's shirt and talk about cutting his balls off mm -hmm. um and he touches ed's chest with that knife he cut him does he cut him? Yeah, there's like a whole line of blood as he goes down. Oh, I didn't I, I didn't notice that. Yeah, I wondered if they actually really cut him or if that was a makeup thing. Did he bleed? He bled. And they get Bobby to take his shirt off and Ned Beatty's standing there in his briefs. <sighs> Boy, man, that's unsettling. It, it is just so vulnerable. Yeah, man. And they it's tell him... He's standing too, but They tell him to take his panties off Ugh. and he runs. Yeah, man. That's when he gets it. Yeah. And, and, and the way... And apparently they rehearsed this a lot. And I hope so. McKinney and Ned Beatty worked on it together a whole bunch. But the the it's all the awkwardness of mm -hmm. it. It's the humanness of it. And he's kind of slapping him in these weird ways mm -hmm. and sliding up and down the hill and in the brown, dirty leaves. He's and, dominating him. Oh, yeah. He's absolutely dominating him as a dog would dominate another dog in an alpha beta situation. And he says he looks just like a hog. Yeah, man. Come on, piggy, piggy, piggy. And then he asks him to squeal like a pig. Mm. You look just like a hog. No, don't. You look just like a hog. Don't miss piggy. No. Don't miss piggy, piggy, piggy. No. Come on. Oh, piggy. Oh, piggy. Oh, piggy. Give me a ride. On a ride. Hey, boy, get up and give me a ride. All right. Get up and give me a ride, boy. All right. You know how squeal like a pig came about? How? So apparently the language is originally a lot, uh, you know, more swear words. Yeah. And the studio had said, listen, you got to shoot versions of all these scenes that don't have all these swear words so mm. we can put it on TV. That's a pretty normal thing to do. Right. And so they're trying to figure out what the hell are we going to say? And someone on the set came up with squeal like a pig. <laughs> and then Borman liked it so much that they never shot the stuff with the swear words. Oh, wow. So that be this, this was actually an alternate thing. 
at first to yeah. just be able to get it on TV. And it ends up being so much more disturbing mm-hmm. um, and making Ned Beatty squeal like a pig. And he gets on top of him. Yeah. He pulls back his nose and he's riding him. Oof. And then he's trying to pull down his underwear. And there's this moment where Ned Beatty stands up. Yeah. And it is so... It's not, I'm going to fight you. No, it's defiant. It's defiant and almost petulant. Yeah. But also knowing you're not going to win. Right. It's not combative. Right. It is, It is again, Ned Beatty's performance. Yep. And then he's calling out for him to squeal, and we have this close-up on Ned's face, and John Voight watching. Yeah. Ned <laughs> Voight. That belt around his neck. Yeah. And he wants to try to stop it. He tries to reach a couple times, try to stop it, try to rip out of the Yeah. Tree, yeah. And the guy with him, which is a coward, cowboy coward, yeah, who's got no teeth, <laughs> smiles over at Ed. And you know Ed's next. Yeah. That's what we know. It's very reminiscent of what you see in Pulp Fiction with Bruce Willis totally. and those guys in, in the bottom of the, of the uh, thrift store. Yeah. Uh, with uh, Ving Rhames and the them. Gimp. Yeah, with the Gimp. Yeah. Well, that's these. Those guys are related to these guys. They moved after this lake got flooded and their village went away. This was the other two brothers. They moved to Los Angeles. Sounds good. Open up a pawn shop. That's an LA movie. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. Um, And then Ed sees something move in the background. Mm. But I do like this, and this is what's so powerful about the scene, Steve. Before we move on to the other scene, is you see them out of focus. Yeah, what's happening? So even Ed, who's kind of whose point of view you're kind of using in the situation, can't see what's happening. Right. Like even he has to fuzz it out of his mind yeah. to in order to deal with it. So uh our mountain man's done with Ned, done with Bobby, leaves him sort of ass in the air. Yeah. Walks away from him, and now it's gonna no tooth guy is moving in on Ed. Um and they undo the belt. And Ed drops to his knees, mm-hmm. and they lift up his chin, mm. guns pointed at him, and they're discussing what we're going to do with him. Yeah. What do you want to do with him? He got a little pretty mouth, ain't he? That's the truth. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And Ed sees Lewis in the background with a bow. And the, the, John Voight's performance as well. Is stunning. His eyes ablaze in this moment. Yeah. yeah. And his reaction to it. And there's a nod, just the smallest nod to Lewis. And they're going towards his pants. And then that arrow comes through the mm-hmm. chest. Oh! Which, of course, is the easiest way to do it, which is the camera moves up and the arrow's already there. Oh, right. Yeah. That's how you do that. Um, and Ed grabs the rifles. The other guy runs away. And Drew comes up going, you better run, you son of a bitch. And he goes to help Bobby. Mm-hmm. And then... There is a very, very slow death. Yeah. It's a long time. This is uh, Bill McKinney. Mm-hmm. Takes him a long, long time to die. How do you know? Do you know the background history of these two actors or anything? So uh, the, I do know the no tooth guy. 
Okay. Uh, which is that they was that Borman had a lot of trouble finding a guy with no you know no front teeth that he could get that would be willing to work with his dentures out because some people have that but they're like no 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 I can't show that right, the right. whole reason I have these things <laughs> um, and it ends up that this is a guy that Burt Reynolds worked with on a dude ranch. Oh shit! And he said I remember my buddy whose nickname is Cowboy and his name is Howard Coward. Howard Coward, Howard Cowboy Coward. That's perfect. And that he caught him, and that's how we got this guy. And oh, wow. McKinney's an actor and a stuntman, but I don't know anything else about him. Okay. Um, and he that slow death, that was the one problem they had with censorship. It wasn't the rape scene. It was how long this guy took to die. Oh, my God. That's the problem they had with censorship. Jesus. Um, and he kind of staggers for, forward and points. Yeah. And Ed reacts to the point and backs up. And Lewis has got another arrow ready, and then he falls down dead on the tree. Yeah. And then we have a conversation. I thought they'd surely kill us. They would have. They would have for sure. What are we going to do with him? And Drew's response, and he's kind of the moral one of the group and the sensitive mm-hmm. one. His response is, There's not one thing to do. Take the body down to entry. Turn over the highway patrol. Tell him what happened. Yeah, of course. For him, it's so easy. Yeah. Was he the one getting raped? Yeah, that's when Ned walks up. Was he the one tied to a tree? And Lewis is going, well, what exactly are we going to tell him? And Drew's not quite connecting mm-hmm. yet. Well, we're just going to tell him what happened. I mean, this is a justifiable homicide, if anything is. They were, they were sexually assaulting two members of our party at gunpoint. Like you said, there was nothing else we could do. By the way, in this scene, which is mostly in one shot, McKinney had to stay motionless with his eyes open, not blinking for oh, like three minutes. Well, his face all scrunched up against the tree, too. It's that incredible. Is hard. That's really hard. Sure. And they get into this discussion about the about the law. And Drew's kind of going, oh, I was on a jury once. It wasn't a murder trial. And Lewis responds to that right away. Murder trial. Murder trial. Well, I don't know the technical word for it, Drew. But I know this. You take this man down out of the mountains and turn him over to the sheriff, there's going to be a trial, all right. Trial by jury. And this is the problem, is that who's going to be on that jury? It's going to be all these guys' friends. So exactly. we're going to go down. We're going to tell them the whole story about yeah. the so, so Bobby got raped, and they were about to rape Ed. So I shot this guy in the back, who's probably a friend of yours. Right. And so go ahead. <laughs> and, and the thing is, I don't, know what the, I don't know what I'd do. I do. You'd do what they did? Of course. It's tough. Or I mean, I cut, cut the pieces up. I might cut the pieces. I mean, if I'm gonna bury the body, you got to do it right. Right. Um, and so we get into this conversation about what we should do. Yeah. And they, the first person they ask is, "What do you think, Bobby?" And he charges that dead body, and they grab him and stop him. Yeah. Again, man, dead Betty. Yep. Yeah. Because um, he's still in a daze from what just happened. Yeah. It's a reflex. Yeah. Ed's Ed's in shock too. He yeah. doesn't know what to do. And Drew is going, no, if you, if, now you listen, Lewis. Now you listen, Lewis. I don't know what you've got in mind, but if you try to conceal this body, you're setting yourself up for a murder charge. Now that much law, I do know. To which Lewis smiles. <laughs> this ain't one of your fucking games. You killed somebody. There he is. I see him, Drew. That's right, I killed somebody. But you're wrong if you don't see this as a game. Yeah. Interesting. It is a matter of the law. The law? <laughs> the law? What law? Where's the law, Drew? 
And finally, we get to whether or not Drew believes in democracy. Let's take a vote. Yeah. We either go back and, and tell the authorities what happened or we hide the body. Yeah. And they ask Bobby, and Bobby says, hide the body. Let's bury him. I don't want this getting around. Which is, of course not. And then it's all on Ed. It's up to you, Ed. It's all up to you, Ed. And there's a long pause and a great look from John Voigt. Yeah. And Drew's trying to convince him, just think what you're doing, Ed, for God's sake. You got a wife. You got a child. You're not involved in this, which Mm -hmm. I don't know what that means. Yeah. And he says, think about your family, Ed. This may be the most important decision in your life. And Ed, in a loud voice, says, yes. Yes. There's no way we can change this. There's no way we can change what happened to Bobby. We got to do the right thing, Ed. We're going to have to live with this for the rest of our lives. Right! I'm with Lewis. And they carry that body down the hill. And a crucifix pose almost. Absolutely. Sacrifice. It it is beautifully shot and awkward, particularly when they have to carry over a, a fallen tree and they lay the body down and they start to dig a grave with their hands. And everyone digs except Drew. Mm-hmm. And then when he starts to dig, he digs like a crazy man. Yeah. It is a really beautiful, beautiful scene. This is the beginning of the end for Drew. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And they drag the body into the shallow grave. They bury him with a rifle. Yep. And the hand is the last thing we see, and it's sticking up. <laughs> that's something that's going to come back. And it's Ed, of course, who has to push that hand down yep. into the grave. Yeah. And they cover him up and put a piece of wood on him. I would have found a, some big fucking rocks to put on at I mean, least. They, should, they use rocks for everybody else. Yeah. And then they head back down, uh, running down the stream towards the canoes. And they ask, and of course, now Lewis is fully in charge at this point. Yeah. And what's the plan, Lewis? And Lewis says, the plan is just paddle down to tree, get the cars, go home. Yeah. And they paddle away. And this time we have Drew and Ed in one canoe. Mm-hmm. And we have Bobby and Lewis back in the other. Yeah. And Drew's not putting his life jacket on. And they hit some rapids. And Drew's not paddling. And, and Ed yells, Drew, paddle. Yeah. He paddles. And the tension is just super high at this yep. point. It is just, and we don't know why the tension is so high. Um, Lewis is looking up, mm-hmm. nervous. Yep. He knows something's coming. And Ed is calling out to Drew, who's not responding. No. Drew looks back. And finally, Ed calls out to Lewis, there's something wrong. We got to stop. We got to stop. And Lewis is going, no, we're not stopping. Drew! Drew, what's the matter? And then there's this moment where Drew shakes his head in this weird way, and then he just goes over the over the edge of the canoe into the water. Yeah. It is weird. Mm-hmm. And what exactly happened to Drew is something that we're going to have to talk about. I don't know if you want to talk about it now. Yeah, sure. No, let's wait. Let's okay. wait, because we got more stuff we have to get through. All right. Because now Drew's out of the canoe. Yeah. And Ed loses control of it. It slams up against the rock. Mm-hmm. The other canoe slams into it. This canoe breaks, and they all go out. They all yep. get dumped. By the way, the way they did this was these the canoes were on rails at this point. Oh, okay. Yeah, so this was controlled. It's still them. Right. It's still them in the boats. Right. And all three people go in the water. Uh, Burt Reynolds does this huge flip into the water. Ed almost gets pulled under a rock. Have you ever gotten pulled under by the by the current or by a river? I have felt the undertow in the ocean. 
but never a, a river. Yeah, I was in a river and got pulled down uh, into a rock. I did a lot of swimming in rivers in Boy Scouts, which I loved, and swimming in pretty good current. Yeah. And there was this one time, I was fine, but there was this one time where I suddenly was sucked down and I went, whoa, yeah. found a place to push off and I swam away. But yeah, yeah it's it's scary. You, yeah. Water is powerful. Ed holds onto a bow as he goes down the rapids, and this shot of John Voight going through, down these rapids, and they're big. Yeah, this is the one stuntman. Oh, that's John. Okay. Vo- that's not John Voight. Okay. And ba- and by the way, when they did this, they were in a place where there was a dam just above, mm-hmm. and Borman got the local power company or whatever allowed them to turn up and turn down the water. Wow! So he got to decide exactly how much water flow there was on these rapids. <laughs> At the time that he did it, he actually turned it way up, and then couldn't get him to turn it down. Oh shit! He offered Burt Reynolds a stuntman. Burt said no. <laughs> so that's really him going down. And he yeah. got hurt hurt pretty bad. Really? Actually banged up his back. Oh, shit. Yeah, that hurt him for a while. Okay. Yeah. And Lewis comes out of the water screaming, obviously injured. Yeah. Bobby swims up to Lewis. They're calling out for Drew. Lewis says his leg's broken. They get to shore. And Lewis says Drew was shot. Drew was shot! What? Drew was shot! Pulls himself out of the water, and we see that bone coming out of his leg. It's all paranoia. Yeah. And he's just saying, he was shot. He right. was shot. He keeps referring, yeah. uh, keeps repeating it. Um, this is the point in the movie, Steve, which is really fascinating to me, where it changes. Oh, yeah. Because Burt Reynolds is the lead of this movie up yeah. until this moment. Yeah. And then it's John Voight's movie. Yeah. And if you read the John, is it John Dickey? Is it? J- James Dickey. James, if you read James Dickey's novel, it is told from... Ed's point of view the whole time, from John Voight's right. point of view the whole time. So, I thought it was incredible for a film from the nineteen from nineteen seventy two to have two separate leads in a film uh, transition in the middle of the film. It was f- fantastic. Well, I think it's I think it's Ed's movie the whole time. Do you? I don't sense that at all. I, I do because they all seem out of their element, and only he, Burt Reynolds, seems in his element the first few minutes. Well, I think it's well, he, well, he, it's a, it's a weird thing. So. Mm-hmm. A movie that came out the same year that it was in competition with for Oscars mm-hmm. is The Godfather. Oh yeah, and the, and nominated for lead actor is Brando, mm-hmm. and supporting actors both James Caan and Al Pacino were nominated. Right. I believe The Godfather is Al Pacino's movie. That's who the main character of the movie is. The first Godfather. Yes. Yeah. Because the story. I mean, this is gets into just sort of. Well, no, more I agree with stuff. you because we 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 come from the beginning. We see Michael because it's about with his a, change. It's about who yes, he becomes. Yes, I think this is the same thing, which is that the it's weird way I'm saying it, but Lewis is the Marlon Brando character. Mm-hmm. He's the one who is in charge when we get there. Right, but it's the story of Ed becoming who he has to become. Right. in the course of this film. That's really the story. Okay, but but yes, this is the moment of transition without yep. question. Yeah, and in particular, L- Lewis's insistence that he was shot. Yeah, that he is. He just knows. Mm-hmm. I wonder. He seemed perfectly cool after killing that guy. Oh yeah, but maybe he wasn't. He had to be cool to keep them all together. But you're right. Maybe he wasn't. But yeah, he 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 he's he because he is insistent that he was shot. Yeah. We don't see a lot of evidence of that. And Ed dives in the water. We're calling out for Drew. And what do we see floating in the water? Broken guitar. Yep. Which is as symbolic as you can get. And now, of course, Bobby is saying that Drew was shot. Right. Because Lewis said it. And so that becomes just the fact. It's groupthink. Yeah. It is exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. They find his uh, his life jacket because he wasn't wearing it. Right. And. He refused to put it on. Yeah. And, and, and there's this talk of like, well, 
maybe he was right. Of course Lewis is right. And now they're starting talking about, well, where is that other guy? What happened to that other guy? Yep, yep. Well, he must be up there trying to shoot us. And they pull uh, Lewis up onto some rock. It's kind of a little bit of ledge, and they're hovering there. And it feels cold, and Lewis starts shivering, which means he's going into shock. Don't you see his injury, the, the flesh and everything? Oh, yeah. Ugh. It looks nasty. That is nasty. It's a lamb bone just sticking out of his out of his pants. Um, uh, and they're trapped. Yikes. Yeah. And, and at first, Bobby says, well, well, we'll just stay here until night, and then we'll go down. We'll sneak down at night. And they point to, do you see the rapids? You really want to run those <laughs> rapids at night? And Ed goes, and this is that moment. This is exactly what you're talking about. He has to become the leader because he suddenly goes, well, he knows where we are. Yeah. And that means we know where he is. And yep. they look up that cliff. Yep. And now Ed knows what he's got to do. Yep. Um, and he climbs up that cliff at night. Mm-hmm. This shut day for night, so it's daytime. Oh, um, so that's what that was, that weird effect. And well, everything. well, and it's also what they did, I think, was they shot the very white sky. Yeah. Um, and they separated it out from the background. So you have kind of sky, it's kind of two layers. Yeah. And they then developed the negative so that the white sky looks black. Wow. So it's the sky part of the image is a negative image, and he's in a positive image, stop down oh. day for night. I think right. that's how Borman described that they did it. Right. And it just looks weird. I mean, it's interesting about day for night shooting is that it yep. doesn't exactly look like night. No. It looks weird. Well, that's something I thought that was effect on purpose that John Borman does that effect to show the changing uh, mental state. Yes, of, of, uh, of uh, Ed. Um, I from listening to him on the commentary track, my gut is that's just how they did it. Cause they didn't have any money. <laughs> um, All right, fair but enough. it looks, it's weird looking. It is. Uh, that's, that's really John Foyt climbing up that cliff. Wow. He does have a harness on him, yeah. but he doesn't have anything else. I mean, it's just, he's climbing a really high cliff. Pulling Tom Cruise. Yeah. Um, well, this is, I guess what John, I guess John Voigt was in a really bad mental place when he started on this movie. And oh. he says that, Deciding to do this movie saved his life because of where he needed this movie at this time. And then John Borman tried to kill him (laughs) (laughs) because all this really dangerous stuff that he was doing. And now he's climbing up this cliff. And it was the cliff scene, by the way, that made him decide to do the movie. And it is it is amazing what's what where he is hanging off this rock thing and goes, Christ, what a view. And then he pulls out his wallet and he looks at his wife and his kid. Yeah. And then he drops it. God damn it! You'll never get out of this good life! God damn it! Oh, that was also angry. Yeah. He he finally gets up to the top of the cliff. Um, he has an arrow knocked, and he's just trying to stay awake. Mm-hmm. And it is so it's so funny watching a guy fall asleep, which is not the most exciting thing in a movie right it's really really scary yeah because you're like don't fall asleep don't fall asleep don't yeah. fall asleep you know what's gonna happen and then what wakes him up there's a guy yep in the morning in the morning yeah and he sees this guy behind right in the, the distance in the distance guy doesn't see him mm-hmm. it's just like the deer he gets out his bow knocks an arrow yep pulls it back starts to shake he starts to shake you're going, no, no. Yeah. And it's, he's shaking, he's shaking. And he kind of settles mm-hmm. maybe a little bit just as the guy, because the guy's now turning around, yep. got the rifle at, aimed at him, and he and they both shoot at the same time. And he goes down, and the guy doesn't go down, 
and we look down and he's got an arrow going right through his side. Yeah. Ah, ah! What is that? So I think what happens is when he fell, he yeah. fell on the arrow. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it is because you're like, did he shoot himself? Like what, yeah. what, what happened here? And the guy comes walking up slowly and it's beautifully shot because he's got the rifle. He's standing above him. He's aiming at him with a rifle and he's moving in a weird way. And he starts to lower the rifle. And it's only really when he turns that you see that arrow is going right through his neck. Yep. yep. Yeah. And he gets one final shot off into the ground. Yep. And then he's done. And then he's done. But don't you think there's symbolism in him stabbing himself with his own arrow? Absolutely. Right? Yes. Right? Yeah. Like he stabbed him. Like he's. That's the only shot he could actually make. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Like he shot the dude on the distance, of course, but that was all luck. You know what? It just occurred to me, by the way. What's that? So the placement of that arrow going through his belly on the side, that's Lancelot and Excalibur. Yeah. It is the exact same place that Lancelot stabs himself with his own sword. Right. Ooh, interesting. Facing his own, facing himself. It is, it is the old wound, my liege. It has never healed. Yeah. But also that's where Christ was stabbed as well. Oh, sure. On the side. That's not what I was thinking of. You're right. Well, of course, because you're an atheist. You don't think of these things. But as, as a believer of the Christian. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but I also think it's I think it's symbolic too. He stabs himself because he's in a way uh um killing a version of himself that was before. Well, and t- taking a life. I know someone's probably listening going, "You pretentious fuck, Roca." No, no, but I'm just, just saying there's look, something here. Look, first of all, you are a pretentious fuck. <laughs> Jesus Christ. No. Um this movie is all symbolism. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean like Oh yeah. I mean the the idea that the the People from the city come to the virgin land, mm-hmm. which is being destroyed. Essentially, the river is being raped by civilization. For the city. And then the people of the city are raped by the people protecting the the land. Yeah. Or the people of the land. Yeah, of the land. Yeah. You know, like Borman said that the that he thinks of the mountain men as like a vengeful spirit of the river that has come back to destroy them. Sure. You know, and the fact that this man wounds himself at the moment that he takes a piece of his own soul by killing another human being. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing too, at this moment, we're not sure that's the guy. Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure until I'm, I'm still not sure. Well, and it's funny. So he pulls him over and he does move his teeth. So this guy has dentures, right? But facially it's not the same guy. I, yeah, I think there is a, there is a possibility that he killed an innocent man. And I think so, because at near the end of the film, which we'll get to when that guy says, well, his brother-in-law went hunting and, Blah blah blah, and he hasn't been back yet. But I think that's the guy that the Voight killed. I think he did kill an innocent man, and that dude with no teeth got away. Well, this guy had no teeth too because he does pull down his dentures. Right, but but it's not the same face. It, it does look like a different guy. Yeah, and the hair is different too. Um, I think, by the way, it is the same actor because it's the same actor. Okay, but I think he's made up. I think it's made. It's pur- purposely made am- ambiguous. Yeah, just as whether or not Drew got shot is right. made ambiguous. Right, and. There's a shot of the sun, and then it's later, and Ed's got his shirt off, and he throws his arrows away. He throws the rifle away. Right. We we go down to the bo- the water where Bobby in the canoe is, and who sees this stuff going in the water, mm-hmm. throws his bow away, and then Ed pushes the body off the cliff. We realize it's 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 tied by a rope, and he's slowly lowering the body down mm-hmm. the cliff. The shot is great. Limp body. Yeah. Which again. Weird things that actors have to do mm-hmm. be a limp body being lowered down a huge <laughs> cliff. Um, and then he climbs down that rope. Mm-hmm. 
And as he's climbing down that rope, we have the classic rope is rubbing along the rocks. Oh, yeah. And we're like, oh, shit. And we're going to have that, too? <laughs> it is really scary. He's going down. He's going down. Then that rope breaks. <laughs> Ned falls down the cliff into deep water. <laughs> and he's suddenly tangled up with a rope. That's so scary. And not just tangled up by a rope. But dead body yeah. hanging on top yeah. of him. He manages to get to the surface. Yeah. Bobby reaches out and pulls him in. I don't believe it. You did it. He killed him. And he looks over at Lewis. Lewis does not look good. Lewis, Lewis had a bad night. Once I thought he died. This is very serious. Mm-hmm. They pull the body up, and it's a beautiful shot with Lewis in the background, Bobby and Ed, the body in the foreground, mm-hmm. and the discussion of, do you think it's, you know, is that him? Yeah. Is that him? And he tells Bobby to look, and he shows him a face, says, you tell me. Mm-hmm. And again, we're in the same moment. It might be him. Yeah. Um, and they basically tie a rock to him, and they push him out into yeah. the river. Yeah. And Lewis is already in the canoe, and they start paddling. They go through some rapids. Four days. And then they find Drew. Yeah. His body's up against like an old broken tree stump. Mm-hmm. It looks, that arm is twisted around his back. Yeah. So Ronnie Cox used to do this for parties. He could dislocate his shoulder. <laughs> and they were talking about what they were going to do. And he said, well, look, watch, I could do this. And John oh. Borman went, oh, wow. Yeah, put him in the water now. <laughs> yeah. So that is that is just Ronnie Cox dislocating his shoulder. Wow. And they start looking at the body. Maybe he was shot. Yeah. And they kind of say a bullet could have made that wound. Right. Okay, now we could talk about it. Okay. Was he shot? No. I don't think so either. Drew wasn't shot. No, Drew killed himself. I think Drew killed himself. I think he couldn't handle the guilt of taking part in the burial of a human soul. His principles and his morals wouldn't let him live with it. And he killed himself in a state of... In a dazed state, because it was a lot probably for him to take on this uh, cool dude playing guitar for a kid, weird kid doing banjos back uh, back and forth. And he seemed like a decent fellow. Then you put him in the situation where, A, he's just seen the after effects of a friend of his raped. He's seen his other friend tie, uh, kill another guy uh, with an arrow, and the other guy was tied to the tree. So he's seen all this stuff all at once. And so... Um, and then them not listening and them burying the body. And you see Ed in close, or uh, 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 Ronnie Cox's character in close up when he's burying the body and he's feverishly digging. Yeah. What is that? He's working that out. He's trying to figure it all out. And it isn't until he gets in the boat and he starts to do the things that he's doing that you realize um, he can't handle the guilt. He yeah, can't deal with the guilt. And so he purposely throws himself into right. the rapids. Yeah. Which means that the decision to go climb up a cliff and kill somebody was made on false pretenses. Well, that's what I'm saying to yeah. me the whole time. Yeah. The, which is, you know, this is messed up. Yeah. And, 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 of course, Bobby's going, well, let's take Drew downstream and the medical people can tell us if he was shot. Oh, yeah. We're not going to do that. Wow. We're already down this pathway too far. Right. Like, we're not taking Drew with us. Yeah. You know, and they time to there's a moment where he's kind of think oh he's tied to the canoe we're going to take him with us right. no we're not no. he's tied to a rock yep and they drop drew in the water yep and they start to paddle and what do we hear as they're paddling <laughs> yeah um that's what that's the moment when i when it occurred to me as i was watching it again that jesus the whole film is doing banjos it is yeah and i was like wow one theme um and now we're coming up on some big rapids yeah 
and they just got to go through and Lewis is suffering in the bottom of the boat. It's brutal what's happening to him. And and Burt Reynolds' performance, pl- who played so tough, yeah, he's doing this great. Uh, yeah. yeah, and he's trying. trying to keep it together and there's some panicking and right. paddling and Lewis is screaming and then they're out of it. And I love Ned Beatty just kind of collapsing in the front and they see the wrecked cars that we'd seen at the beginning of the film. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, of course, Ned Coppin said, oh, we did it. We did it. We, we made did it. it. And it's like, no, we got to get Lewis to a doctor. And then we have to decide. We have to have our story straight. Yep. Bobby, listen. Everything happened right here. Everything happened right here. Lewis, Lewis broke his leg in those rapids there and threw drowned here. No, in no. This, it, this place. Here. No, nothing happened here. Bobby, listen to me. We got to stop them from looking up river. It's important that we, we get together on this thing. You understand? got to stop them looking on the river because there are two other bodies up the river that were shot by arrows. Yep. And so we can't have them see that. Yeah. And Bobby's kind of arguing with it. And he says, you understand? And I love Burt Reynolds's performance saying, I understand. I understand, Eddie. I understand. That's right. That's right, Lewis. It's our story. I, I, that has stuck with me forever. Yeah. I, I hadn't seen the movie in a long time, mm-hmm. but I remembered that moment. Yep. That is, that is powerful. It's incredible, dude. Think about it. It's just incredible, isn't it? That an actor like Burt Reynolds willing to see the spotlight in this movie like this and become second fiddle to John Voight in this situation at this time. Well, he's not a... But John Voight's the bigger star. Yeah, John Voight's the bigger star. I but know. I think it's more interesting that he, he as a really macho guy, because mm-hmm. Burt Reynolds is a macho guy. Yes, he is. Or was, is that he's willing to be so vulnerable yeah. in this moment as yeah. he is. Well, it's like that old Eddie Murphy joke, right? Everybody talks about when you watch uh, somebody get shot in the movies, like, it's like, poof, ah, go on without me. But in real yeah. life, you get shot, it's like, poof, don't you leave me. Don't yeah. you leave me, motherfucker. Um, it's real when you get shot. It ain't no fucking movie. And now we start to see the shots of the flooded river that they're they're going. Yeah, through. yeah. Because the dam is there, and the river is slowly filling up and becoming a lake. Yep. Uh, and they paddle to shore, and what do they see right on the shore is a church. Church that's right up at the water's edge. That's up, kind of on raised up on platforms. Salvation. Yeah. Deliverance, so to speak. Deliverance, exactly. Yeah. And Ed walks up this ramp in this lonely, barren place, mm-hmm. and he looks around, and. There are the cars. Yep. And there's a great moment when he kind of just touches the car. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've been like, I did a hundred mile backpacking trip once. And I remember when you get back to civilization, there's just like, oh, this is real. Yeah. Like, cause you've just been, you know, sleeping on the ground and out yeah. in the rain this whole time. And like, oh, there's these modern conveniences are here. <laughs> they find some family and ask for a phone. And later on, Lewis is being loaded up in an ambulance and, Bobby's making a statement yep. and they kind of saying, yeah, we look for him. And Ed goes away in the ambulance. We're in a hospital. And uh, they're like, how'd you shoot yourself with your own arrow? <laughs> and then it's kind of later and Ed's been sort of patched up and we're in this house. That's maybe a boarding house yeah. or something like that. And it's dinner time. Yeah. And Ed comes into this dinner. Ned's already there. Bobby's already there sitting down with a group of people. They're telling some story about something squash about squash. Yeah. And Ed walks in and he sits down very tentatively and they welcome him. And I love that Bobby stands yep. when he comes in. It's out of respect. That's exactly what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And there's so much emotion. It's so filled with emotion in this scene. Yeah. And he sits down. If Ed hadn't done what he'd done, there's no way Bobby would be sitting at that table. That's right. That's right. He knows. And well, and they share something. Yeah. They share a experience. deep, deep secret, you know. 
And they offer some food and they're passing some food around. And Bobby's just staring at Ed. Yeah. And there's just so, man, again, Ned Beatty. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, and they hand him the food and he gets the peas and he starts to cry. Yeah. And it's that, that kind of like, yeah, I can't resist it. Yeah. And cry. Yeah. You know, like I can't stop it from coming. Why do you think, what's making him cry? Do you think? I think surviving the situation. He had to keep it so tight to get out of the situation. Yeah. He's finally able to let it go a little bit and they let him cry. No one tries to stop yeah. him. No one says, it's okay. You, you're cool. He just does it. Then co- recomposes himself, and then everybody's fine. I think. I think too. After surviving what he survived, to be sitting at this table surrounded by human kindness. It's yeah, yeah. It's so moving. That's a great point. And I love too that Bobby says something like he says, "Oh, this is good corn," or yeah. whatever he says, which yeah. it was a Ned Beatty improvisation. Yeah, but it's such a good. We're trapped in this moment, and he needs to, of of Ed crying, yeah. and he needs to take the attention away, and that is what he does, yeah. you know. And it's a really, it's not heroic or anything, no, but no. it's it's a really lovely, lovely moment. Agreed. Um, so the next day, police are asking some questions. Yeah, yeah. You know who that sheriff is right, Jim James Dickey. Yeah, that's right, the writer of the piece. Yeah, he so, does. Oh, great, he's great. Job. Yeah. Apparently, they made up enough after for him to ask him <laughs> back to do the part. Um, and Ed thinks Bobby told the truth. What'd you tell him? They found part of the green canoe, didn't they, Bob? Upstream, and you got scared. And I love the moment that uh, Ned Beatty just slams Ed up yeah. against the wall. Yeah. I know you. You told the truth, didn't you, Bobby? You told the truth. I didn't do that! He loses on him. Yeah. And Ed turns around on him very quickly, but still. And he says, I told him what we agreed on. Yeah. They didn't believe me. And we're out dredging the river because people are looking for Drew's body. Mm-hmm. They're not finding it. Because in the wrong area. Right, because he's not here. Nope. I don't think this was a great lie. I think they could have come up with a better lie. Yeah. I think they should. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Their <laughs> lie was not the perfect lie. Uh, there's a guy there who's, this is the guy whose brother-in-law went missing. A better lie wouldn't have made them question them and that a better lie wouldn't have had the um underlying tension throughout the last half of this part of this movie where you wonder if the sheriff is going to right. turn and put them in well jail. this is we don't want our people to do a perfect no. lie because it's not good for the tension exactly. Yeah, exactly right yeah um and the brother-in-law is like you got to arrest these guys and the sheriff kind of goes i don't have anything to arrest yeah. them on yeah they're lying sheriff um and and bobby exchange a look and now we're in a cab and the guy there is also a local guy talking about the town. It's a weird guy, man. Well, weird place. Yeah, true. And they're talking about this dead town that's going to be, which is real. There were yeah. really towns flooded by dams like this. Yeah. And then there's this moment of, sorry, got to wait for the church. Yeah. Because they're hauling the, because the church is being towed out of town. Yeah. There's that shot of that steeple and the bell ringing in the church. Mm-hmm. This is where the symbolism of this movie is yeah. just powerful. Yeah, agreed. We go to the hospital. To go visit Lewis, yeah, and we hear be nice to him. He might lose his leg, mm. and he's been unconscious. And there's a police officer right there, yeah. And they go up to him to tell him their story has changed a little bit. And they're like, Whispers Lewis, it like I gotta audibly, yeah. yeah. The story's changed. And then Lewis kind of opens his eyes, and the first thing he says is, "What happened on that last set of rapids? I don't remember nothing." 
Well, the first thing he does is wink. Oh, did he wink? Yes. I missed the that? wink. I oh, missed yeah. the wink. Yes. Yeah, so by the way, when I'm taking notes, I'm constantly well, yeah, through the whole movie. So yeah, yeah I no, missed don't the sweat. Oh, that's great. As he leans in, he says, we changed the story. Can you hear? We changed the story. And he looks up. Ed op- or uh, uh, Lewis opens his eyes and he goes, and he just does a, just the quickest of winks and then goes into the whole thing. Since I don't remember nothing. Yep. Loudly for the cop to hear. Yep. Ed is relieved. And that is just a perfect, perfect moment. That was his way of saying, I know what you you want me to do, Ed. Yeah. Now we're back at the cars, Mm -hmm. and Ed's got to drive Drew's car. Yeah. He pulls down the visor. Yeah, sees the the wife and the child. Yeah. Yeah. And Bobby offers to drive and tell... Because he's an insurance guy. I'm sure he's used to telling people, hey, mm. your, your, your family's dead, your family member's yeah. dead or something. Yeah. And who rolls up but the sheriff? And there's a little conversation. He asks about who brought the cars down and was there another man with him and how did that all happen? And, and you could see Bobby's really close to breaking. Oh, yeah. He is about ready to give it up. There were four laugh bests. Yeah. Ask, yeah. Ask, why were there four laugh bests left? Bring an extra one. Yeah, and Bobby goes, oh, yeah, 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 we brought an extra one. And Ed goes, no, mm-hmm. Drew wasn't wearing his life vest. And why wasn't he doing that? And a great look from Ed, and he says, I don't know. Yep. Which is which is true. Literally the truth. Yep. And the sheriff leans in and says, don't ever do nothing like this again. Don't come back up here. And Bobby, of course, goes, you don't have to worry about that, Sheriff. <laughs> um, and sh- the sheriff's last line is, I kind of like to see this town die peaceful. That's a fascinating line. I love that line. Yeah. and Which means he doesn't want any controversy. Yeah, and the sher- sheriff drives away. And I lo- the last moment is so interesting. Goodbye, Ed. Bye, Bobby. I don't think I'll see you for a while. I don't think they're ever going to see each other. I, I mean, maybe they'll that. see each other once or twice. When we do the sequel. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> when they go to Barry Lewis, yeah. who's actually dead? Burt Reynolds. Oh, fair. <laughs> Michael bury him in the river. Um, Ed goes out, looks out over the water. He kind of crosses over from a fence and climbs up a little hill. Mm-hmm. And he looks out and he sees graves. Yeah. They're digging up the cemetery. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's as symbolic as you can get. Mm-hmm. They buried two guys, one in the dirt and one in the water. Yeah. And this whole movie is about, or the end of it is about what's going to come up. Yeah. And if the past can come back, right? And here you got people digging up the ba- graves to move them somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. And then Ed's home, and he embraces his wife. We see the kid, yeah. blonde hair. You know who that is? Who? Well, that's John Borman's son. Oh, you know where else we've seen John Borman's son? Isn't he Mordred? Yeah, Mordred. Mordred. Yeah, that's Mordred. Wow. Yeah. Uh, this is the first of John Borman's movie he acted in. Wow. And then there's a beautiful shot of the lake. Water. Little bubble. <laughs> slowly but surely, a hand rises to the surface. Yeah, man. And Ed wakes up. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> great. It's a great ending, man. So, so, and what's, so first of all, Borman says he was thinking about the Lady of the Lake when he shot this. Shut up! That's what he says. That makes sense. He also says that Brian De Palma shot the end of Carrie in reference to this. Oh, interesting. And De Palma loved this movie and thanked him and said, I'm doing an homage to Carrie. And then what's so disturbing is his wife wakes, you know, he wakes up from the dream. His wife wakes up and says, oh, it's okay, it's okay. She kind of holds him, goes back to sleep. Mm -hmm. And John Voight's eyes stay open. Yep. And the credits just roll over him awake. And they roll for a while. Right. 
I don't think he's going to sleep for a long time. Nope. Yeah. Well, it's just like the credits that open. We see people talking. Real life is happening as the credits are being seen yeah. at the beginning of the movie. Real life is happening at the end yeah. of the credits as well. And I agree with you. It's an interesting choice to have him just yeah. be sitting there with his eyes. And then the open. very end is back to the lake. Yep. Back to the lake. Yeah. I wondered if uh, Friday 13th took some of this from them. Sure. With the, with the, with the, you know, Jason coming out in the dream sequence. Sure. Uh, out of the lake, you know? Um, so this was a huge hit. Yeah. Low budget movie. Huge, huge hit. Uh, $46 million. Oh, really? Wow. That much. Wow. That's amazing. For that time. It's pretty incredible. Well, and it's like, this is the thing about the seventies is people were going to see hard, difficult, disturbing movies back then. Yeah. And what Borman said is, you know, this movie only gets made in the seventies because this is the oh, time yeah. the studios aren't. They're letting directors do what they want to do. Mm -hmm. Censorship is low. There were no test screenings. There were no cards. He yep. got barely any notes from the studio. He just had his control, and they made the movie as he wanted to make. And he said, I want you to put out a soundtrack. And they're like, we're not going to do that. It's not a rock and roll soundtrack. <laughs> it's not country. It's not really country and western. There's no lyrics. It's just dueling banjos. Yeah. Like, we're not putting a sound. He finally convinced them to do it. They released it in one market, and it became a huge hit. The soundtrack was a massive, massive hit as I'm well. So, I'm not surprised. Uh, it got nominated for three Oscars uh, for Best Picture, Director, and Editing. Lost them all. Because this Did is... It? Yeah, I think so. I thought John Borman won Best Director. No, because this is the year of Godfather. Oh, yeah. so and actually, Cabaret wins. Uh, uh, he he won for best director. Bob Fosse. Fosse won, and Godfather wins for best picture. Yeah, Godfather wins for best picture. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it was a big year. Damn. But it's a fascinating, fascinating movie. Interesting. Um, do you have any final thoughts? <laughs> Shit. Uh, yeah. Here's my final thoughts. This film, it was great to revisit this film in honor of Burt Reynolds. You know, it is an unusual film in the 70s when you have, unusual film for any time, I imagine, when you have someone who starts out as the main lead, in essence, the Burt Reynolds character, and then cedes the spotlight to the other uh, alpha dog in the room, in essence, in terms of career, and that's John Voight, who takes over and runs with it for the rest of the movie, but... Overall, the the thing that's uh, uh, so fantastic about the film is that it stays with you because nature, or the water, the river, all those kinds of things, man always thinks they can conquer nature, and they never can. And uh, Burt Reynolds' line or Lewis's line where he's like, you know, you have to lose yourself in order to find something, and you don't tame this river, you don't beat this river. And I think that's life. Life is the river. You don't beat life. Eventually, you do, you're, you'll, you die, but you have to do your best going down that river to survive all the things that you run into in your life that you don't know are around the corner. And that's the way it is. And so to me, that's the, the film has so much more resonance and symbolism as a, um, as a metaphor for life. You know, you go down the river with your friends. You don't know who's going to live, who's going to die. You don't know how it's all going to go down. And you don't know what terrible things you're going to encounter in your world. But if you just keep paddling, like Dory said, just keep swimming. If you just keep paddling, at some point, you find your way out. Oh. So I have a, I have a couple thoughts of this. I'm trying to put them straight in my head. The, mm -hmm. the first one is that this movie is such a great example of what we've lost in Hollywood films. Mm. This m brief moment in the 70s where people were willing to do movies that were dangerous. Yeah. And this movie was dangerous. It goes into subject matter that is uncomfortable mm -hmm. and doesn't shy away from it. It doesn't put a veneer of 
of positivity or of simplicity or some sort of moral answer at the end of this film yeah. to make this all okay. This is not okay, you know? And it, and it shows us things that sides of ourselves that maybe we don't want to see. Yeah. And that kind of movie is just not being made anymore. In fact, I don't think that kind of thing is being made anywhere because yeah. that's not the world we live in anymore. And that sort of relates to what I was thinking about about the movie, which is that there's this desire to go out into the real experience Mm-hmm. not the oh, fake yeah. experience mm-hmm. and that's what lewis is all about he's like we need just like you said is that we need to go find something right. and the only way we can find the real thing is not to be safe we have to go out of our comfort zone and what i was thinking about is a lot of the experiences that we have are very safe ways to feel like we're having a real experience mm-hmm. like when you go to disneyland they have spent millions and millions of dollars to create an experience for you yeah. that feels like you're in danger yeah you know in all sorts of thrilling ways incredibly thrilling ways yeah. except that you know that you're completely entirely safe and even if you go out to more extreme versions of them like you go river rafting mm-hmm. or you go jump out of an airplane or bungee jumping or things like that there's still the way most of them happen. You go to the place mm-hmm. and you sign your release form and there's the expert there and they're really, and yes, of course, people can get injured in these right, things, right. but they're still in sort of controlled circumstances. What these guys go to do is something dangerous. They literally can't control. And I think there are things that you get out of those experiences. You know, like I meet going down to the Great White Shark shoots off the coast of Mexico mm-hmm. with a bunch of guys on a boat in the middle of nowhere, you know, <laughs> where there are people getting in the water of the Great White Shark. We can't control those experiences. Right. And there's something you get out of them. But you also go into the world where you're not safe. Yeah. You know, and this balance between knowing those things that you get to know about yourself when you've really been in those circumstances Mm -hmm. and this is something stupid to do relates to me to those movies of the seventies where they went out to do things that were not safe. Yeah. You know, Francis Ford Coppola and apocalypse now, that's not safe. Like they're, you know, they're going out to do things. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. And that's an interesting thing that happens. And in this particular area of the, it's the relationship between the, civilization yeah and the natural world and the uncivilized world yeah yeah yeah. you know and that and moving from one to in civilization we're protected yeah and when you go out into that river you're not yeah and that is a fascinating world to enter into into and a world that you kind of want to be delivered from by the end. Very good. All right. So that's what we think of deliverance. Of course, we always want to hear what you think. Please visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for the cinephiles, subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or YouTube or Mm -hmm. tune in or any of those other places. And I'll tell you one other one, which is that we know some people who have had some trouble, whether it was on YouTube or other places, maybe listening to the show on an Android phone or in a location where there's uh, restrictions. You know what you should do? You should go to our website, cinephiles.net. You can listen to all our shows there. It's a beautiful looking website. You can see all the artwork, see all the posters, and you could also buy or stream every movie we've ever reviewed there. Just go to cinephiles.net. If you want to support the show, we definitely appreciate it. Go to patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You can choose a movie that we review or even just throw in a dollar a month. It's 25 cents a show for two hours of content. It's well worth it. Um, And if you wanted to reach me, you could always reach me at SR Morris on Twitter. John, where could they reach you? You guys can always reach me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram, you know, and see all the stuff I'm doing over there at Collider. For those of you who are listening who are sports fans, we've started a new channel at Collider, which I host a lot of shows on Collider Sports 
Find it on YouTube. Find it on uh, um, iTunes. Trying to pitch it and get people watching more and more. And so it's a really fun thing that I'm doing now. It's a new adventure I'm doing. So in my turn life. off ESPN. Yes. And go directly to Collider Sports. That's right. Because that's where you should be getting all your sports news. Damn right. We got some good analysis and we're not beholden to any league. We tell our truth, our raw, unfiltered truth about things that we look at and see in the world of sports. Nobody wants a filtered Roka. Come on. I don't think you can do it. No. It doesn't exist. No. All right. Well, that's it for this week. If you want to tune in next week for more unfiltered Roca and slightly filtered Morris, you can do so on the Cinephiles. Yes.